0: Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The
5: Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through the politician's spin. I've got another interesting show ahead for you this week, and my first guest this afternoon will be Liam Hare, an ardent National Party supporter who seems to think he'll end up disappointed by a national-led government. We discuss these feelings and debrief the election from the viewpoint of a National Party supporter. And then I'll be talking with Gary Moller about his thoughts post-election, missed opportunities, health, nutrition, and what the new government must do about all that. We'll dip into the mailbag, of course, and then it'll be time for a chat with my buddies to find out what their thoughts are about Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown a year on from his election. Don't forget to send comments to Inbox at Reality Check Radio or text to 2057.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
5: Almost five years ago, on the 28th of October, 2018, I awoke at 6am, unable to use my right arm, half of my face slumped and with a very wonky walk. After an earlier brush with Bell's palsy two years prior, the symptoms are very similar. I knew the tests that you needed to check to see if you'd had a stroke. My heart was racing faster than I'd ever experienced with panic attacks and depression. In short, I felt like I'd been run over. There was no pain, however, I had zero strength. The ambulance seemed to take an age. It was probably only 10 minutes and they were only in the house for about 20 minutes and then I was bundled in the back of the ambulance and driven to hospital. I finally got to drive on the Northern Expressway. Sounds silly, but it's something that I always wanted to do, but it was not an ideal situation and my life had changed and not for the better. Little did I know but the stroke was the least of my troubles. The first inkling of those troubles was receiving media inquiries within 30 minutes of arriving at the hospital. How did they know? It caused me not inconsiderable stress. And I know who those pricks are and they will never ever be getting anything from me ever again. With such a massive privacy breach, I was loath to stay at North Shore Hospital. But in any case, it was decided to transfer me to the stroke unit at Auckland Hospital after several tests and scans. I don't know if you know, but when you have a stroke, some things are not obvious, but seriously affect you. One thing that affected me was my hearing had become extremely sensitive. It still is. I can hear people clearly talking across a room even if they are talking in hushed tones. I can also focus on a conversation across the room, even if there are others around making lots of exceedingly annoying noise. But sounds in general have become annoying, especially whining or squealing children. Another side effect of my stroke, because of where the stroke was located, was my already low tolerance for stupidity, coupled with a propensity to say out loud what others would only think was heightened. In other words, I just blurted things out. I had no control over it. And so you can imagine what people thought when I would just come out and say things out of the blue. The biggest issue I had was my exceedingly high blood pressure. And it hovered around 200 over 120 for a couple of days until through trial and error, they stabilized it via medication. One test they performed on the day of my discharge after a week in hospital was to establish clinically if I would ever regain the use of my arm again. It involved placing a figure-of-eight shaped electrode over the site of the stroke on my head and recording electrical impulses in my arm on electrodes down the arm. The grim faces of the medical guys conducting the test told me everything I needed to know. And when they wanted to do the tests again, then I knew it was bad. They told me I'd never use my right arm again. It was that blunt. And they got a senior, respected neurologist to come and explain it to me. And that was a pretty low moment. Thankfully, the neurologist then told me that I'd have to learn to do everything with my left hand. And I asked him, like what? And he said, like writing. Great, I said, pass a pen, no time like the present, and started writing something on a piece of paper. What I wrote was, you clearly haven't read my notes. I'm left-handed. And that certainly lightened the mood for a moment. But at that moment, I resolved to prove the experts wrong. Can't isn't a word I recognise and a word I seldom use. Can't is what other people say. I told the specialists they were wrong and I left hospital determined to prove them wrong. I was sent home then, but the next morning I was pretty crook. My blood pressure went through the roof again and the doctor called an ambulance. Back to hospital I went, and back to my privacy being breached again at North Shore Hospital. Suffice to say, I was back in Auckland Hospital, under an assumed name, where they found that my potassium levels had dropped to dangerous, life-threatening levels. That was five years ago. And as I lay there in the hospital, I took stock of my life. I was profoundly changed by this experience, but it's taken almost five years to get things sorted in my life. Nearly dying focuses one's mind, and I realized that for 30 years I had neglected my faith. But first I had to fix my body, and then my mind, and finally I found the bandwidth to address my faith. I was stubborn and determined to heal, and I'm the type of person that refuses to ever quit. I fixed my body by diving deep into physiotherapy and I've regained almost full use of my arm as a result. I never gave up and never gave in. There were still issues to overcome though, including a frozen shoulder, which is extremely painful, and reactivating muscles and tendons is rather painful too. But I never gave up and never gave in and went day after day to physio. And by the time the whoopox hit, I was used to being isolated. But the worst thing was Ardern's kindness stopped my physio. You cannot fathom how frustrating that had been and how detrimental to my recovery as well. But that's Jacinda Ardern's kindness for you. So here we are, five years later, I'm fit, I'm healthy. I defied all the experts' prognoses. And now my risk of another stroke is dramatically reduced. One thing that I learned from my stroke experience is that if it is to be, it is up to thee. And this means that you must do it yourself and you must not wait. When the occupational therapist came to assess me, i had already made great strides in recovery. I was past whatever support they could offer. And that's because I backed myself and got superb assistance privately. And that is why I continue to attend physio. I'm still finding improvements as each week goes by. Normally, people find they plateau after six months. I never have, and I put that down to my dogmatic and some would say selfish, single-minded mission to recover. When I left the hospital, it was with a prognosis of never being able to use my right arm or hand again. They said that things might improve slightly for the first three months, but by six months, it would stop. I told the doctors they were wrong. And it just goes to show that my pig-headed stubbornness and never-say-die attitude is a help, not a hindrance. But imagine how much better I'd have been if we didn't have the lockdowns, which prevented even more physiotherapy. Stopping critical physiotherapy for stroke victims was hardly kindness. How many stopped altogether rather than keep on trying to recover? It's disappointing, depressing, challenging, and at the same time rewarding, invigorating, and satisfying to see those little improvements happen week after week, month after month, year after year. It has been mentally and physically draining, recovering from the stroke. And that's why I took a whole year off from any work right at the start. It's why I still only do one article a day, even now. And just so you know, to do this show each week, takes almost an entire day or preparation and planning for just three hours on air. But the thing you find out when you have a life-changing medical event like this is just precisely who your friends are, who are there for you and who are not. Those who are not aren't worth the time. I cut them from my life and I don't miss them at all. Those who are there for you are treasures. Those of you who are there for me know who you are, and I thank you most profusely for the support you've given me and those around me. And so, now, five long years have elapsed, the struggle continues. I'm still here, I'm still fighting, and I'm not going away. But I'll continue to develop a better life and work balance, and I'm taking up new hobbies and starting some new projects for relaxation. And there are certainly many more challenges ahead, like finding out what continues to deplete my potassium is still a work in progress, but like everything, I'll eventually solve that one too. And contrary to what the doctors predicted, I do have the use of my right arm. Now I can't get tight with that hand, but it's getting slowly but surely stronger and more dexterous. It won't recover fully and there will always be an impairment, but even so, I'm a better person both mentally and physically despite my impairment and certainly better than most people. And I describe myself as enhanced rather than impaired. At some stage, I might write a book or sit with someone who will write it for me. There is so much to tell about and not just the past five years, but also the things that I've done in my life that few people know about. I've certainly had plenty of time to think about it, And there is lots to tell. Eventually, the other side of what the media and my opponents have said will need to be told. Then people will see the real me, not the dark, cartoonish persona my opponents attempted to pigeonhole me as. The truth will out, and that time is coming. For now, I'll keep on keeping on. I know that the mere fact that I'm living and breathing gives my political enemies cold comfort. I still live rent-free in their tiny feeble minds, and the funny thing is, even after a serious stroke like I've had, I'm still better at what I do than all of them combined. I'm well on the road to a near full recovery, and I have lots more that I want to achieve. And you will see them happen, because I won't be deterred from achieving those goals. Five years is a long time, but it's a blink in the eye, really, when you look at your life in total and I'm so grateful that I've had lots of people around me to support me as I recover thank you for taking the time to listen to this five years is a big chunk of my life and I wanted to share that journey with you
0: want an easier way to listen to RCR well you can now download the brand new reality check radio app both on iOS and Android We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening. And download the RCR app now.
5: Liam Hare is a staunch National Party supporter, but he describes himself as a little squishy these days. He wrote a memo to Christopher Luxon, so we'll discuss that, along with his thoughts about the election campaign, the results, and where to from here. He's on the line now to discuss the results of the election with me. Welcome to The Crunch. Hello. Good to have you here. I've been following your articles, your Substack, and your tweets, and uh, you know I've always had a bit of a, a soft spot for some of the points that you make, even if you are you know a blinkered, sycophantic National Party uh, person. <laughs> that's about the level of beat up you're going to get from me today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, I think that's completely fair. Um, you know, I think I mean. Over the years, I, so I started out writing about politics in twenty thirteen, so twenty eleven for um, you know um, the mandatory standard and stuff and things like that. And at this at the time, I've always been a national party sort of guy, I'm like you know dairy farmer son and that's sort of just you know sort of the tribe that I belong to, I guess. But I certainly was a lot more um, right wing than I than I am now, and uh, and and the reason why I've sort of become a lot less um, sort of. Outspoken or a lot less um, sort of radical is simply just I've become really pessimistic over the years. I've become really pessimistic about what can be achieved politically, and um, so my standards are just a lot lower. Um, and you know, and it's, it's a loss of hope, really. <laughs> like I, I, had a, I did an interview with Damian Grant, and he just said, "You're just supporting the National Party out of um, you know uh, sort of not believing that better, better things are possible." And I was like, "Yeah, that, that's basically me right now."
5: Yeah, it's, it's interesting you said it because people accuse me of being a, you know, a tribal National Party uh, supporter, but they clearly haven't kept up with developments um, at least since twenty fourteen, uh, where well, effectively, need- effectively I felt the National Party, um, you know, chucked me under the bus uh, to suit a political narrative, and not whilst I accept that at some point it opened my eyes up to the fact that I believe that they're the party of the status quo. They very rarely make significant changes, and they like to tout themselves as efficient managers of the economy mm-hmm. of the things that the Labour Party did. <laughs> so well, that's I think, but that's, I think that's,
6: complete,
1: and that's completely fair. And so, first of all, like, you know, you've never really been a National Party sycophant like, like I am. Right, like even back in the um, in the glory days, like you you know you were always involved in the internal strife within the party. You know, yeah. like it wasn't like a party line. You know, you went David Farrer because um, the quickest thing for David is a friend of mine too is that you know whenever if, if you want to see what way the wind is blowing, you know look to where Kiwi Blog is and that's where the national party is going with things, but that was never really the case with your old blog. No. Um, but, but for me personally, like, I just think, yeah, you're right. And you know, the national party doesn't, um, it, it makes changes at the margins and, and historically sometimes it has rolled back big things. Um, but what you're getting out of the national party is a slower, um, a slower acceleration towards the cliff perhaps. And, you know, more skillful driving, but it's not going to fundamentally change the politics of this country. But I, I've always had the view, um, you know, it's like what that, that guy Andrew Breitbart said that if you have a fundamentally left-wing media, you have a left-wing um, uh, civil society, all the charities are left-wing. Uh, you turn on TV, you're getting left-wing messages. You, you can't expect that the elected government is going to be anything other than sort of uh, soft left. And so I, I've always just felt that politics has been about choosing between the least worst alternative, really, and. I know it's really like it's not inspiring, right? But it's just, it's just where I've got to in life.
5: Yeah. It's, it's, it's the old saying is that you have to learn to swallow dead rats. Um, but, you know, it's funny you mentioned Andrew Breitbart because many years ago, uh, this left wing uh, foghorn on, on Twitter, as it was then, uh, had his own blog. A guy called Peter Arani had a meeting with me. And he said, you know what? You're just like Andrew Breitbart. And he was meaning it as an insult. And and I thought, hang on a second. This guy's a multi-millionaire. He's founded a news Mm -hmm. network. Uh, He's talked about all around the world. Uh, Yeah, that sounds like me.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah. So, you hey, know, I ran eyes are kind of weird. He had a thing where he would, 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 would go after me for a long time. Is he still kicking around? Is he, is he doing yeah, it?
5: He's, he's very obsessive. Hmm. A strange man who, who, when you meet him, his first thing he says is, I used to work with Paul Holmes. And my answer to that was, So what? Yeah.
1: <laughs> just, yeah. Like in the nineties. What <laughs> a thing to hang on to. <laughs> I know.
5: You know, um, it yeah. seems he has a falling out with almost everybody, and uh he seems yeah. to be a very bitter man. Very smart, yeah. um, can be erudite as well, but just bitter and snarky. And you know, there's unfortunately there seems to be a lot of humorless people on the left. And, you know, <laughs> I look back on the things that have been described about me, you know, especially by Nicky Hager. Who's probably the most bitter person I've ever met, but you know he 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 wrote a book and said there was this vast conspiracy of people that were working to do this and do that and undermine that. And, but because he never asked us what why we did what we did uh, when mm. we were writing, <laughs> and if he had, I would have said for
1: fun, I do it for fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I've I've got to confess, I've never like I personally never had anything that free. Very- pleasant interactions with him um, possibly because i'm trying to make sure he never writes a book about me um but my criticism of of him <laughs> is that you know if you're doing journalism you know like you you need to put the other side you know yeah. you need to put it to the other side right and so i think there's this fear that you know that um you know somehow there'd be an injunction taken out prohibiting the publication of the book which means that you know, rush to press, keep it under wraps. Don't tell the other people that the books being written about them, and don't get it's their so side of it. And it? there were some, there were some. Well, I think you know the the one that I think was quite bad. Uh, well, you know, one that sticks to, in memory anyway is um, the the princess party allegations and dirty politics, where you know there was some party in Palmerston North, of all places, that Farah was going and. But without context, it sounded like it was some sort of nefarious, you know, hitting on girls while well, the drunk thing. But it turned out it was just, you know, it was about the royal wedding. And It's exactly uh, you know, what it was. Those, it was a
5: royal wedding. Yeah. There was about 20 people in a room uh, having a few beers and it was the most boring party out. In fact, I went elsewhere uh, because it was just so, like National Party people are pretty boring, really. Yep. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Um, that was just nothing. And it was blown out of context. You're right. It was blown out of context. It was pathetic. Yeah.
1: Um, and the it, National and Party been... people are very boring. Oh, yeah. You're, you're right about that. Like, you know, people think that the average National Party person is like some, you know, um, uh, plutocrat in a shark skin suit, but it's actually normally some old man in a woolly jumper, um, you know, with um, old man breasts. Or a young net nerd, you know, like it's it's uh, you know people have these ideas about the National Party. You can tell that they've never ever been to a single National Party conference.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah, and I've done plenty of those, you know, and um, but I, you know, I'm no longer a member of the National Party, so maybe I should hand in my seal skin
1: hubcaps. <laughs> are you a member of any party, or you? No, I'm not a never member. Going to go any. down that path again.
5: No, I'm never going to go down that path again. I've thrown partisan politics aside. I'm actually enjoying what we're doing here at Reality Check Radio. And yes, yep. I, I have my opinions. I have my views. I have my own personal biases, but it's not um, attributable to any one party or any. And, you know, I've been accused of being mm. a Peters sycophant, but if only, yeah. they could, um, if only they could make a GoPro that would last nine hours, And we would just set it up and watch um, Winston and I over a a couple of uh, whiskeys and some cigars, just absolutely going hammer and tongs at each other, disagreeing with each other, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the thing that I think is missing from New Zealand politics these days is the ability to discuss things with people that you might be (laughs) impeccably opposed to, but you can have a civil discussion about it.
1: Yeah, I do agree with that. And, uh, it's, one one thing that's really interesting though is, you know, I do, every now and then I'll do a bit of TV work and I'll do Q and A or or the nation or whatever, and in the green room you will sometimes meet people that you've heard go at you on social media, and and the the most the, the biggest pussies. And, yeah. you know, like, you know, like when it comes to fronting it up in yep. person, yep. Uh, they're nice as anything, you know, it's only the, the cowardice of social media that makes them horrible. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of why it, why it's so toxic. Right. Like, you know, people, most people, most like my wife's, a you know, uh, like a Green Labour Party sort of voter. We talk about politics very, very rarely. Occasionally we do. But but actually, you know what? People have more in common um, then, then they have indifference. People say, "How can you be married to like the school teacher?"y sort of sometimes green vote? I'm like, we, we, we talk about our kids. We have other things going on in our life. We're not losers who like you know are dominated by politics all the time. And therefore, when we do talk about politics, we can do so not hating each other. That's I think you're absolutely right about that.
5: Yeah, you're calling me a loser here.
1: <laughs> um, I'm saying, I'm saying we're all losers. If we weren't losers, we would be interested in things that were more fulfilling instead of things that were just frustrating. Oh, you know, we're right. all yeah, we're I mean,
5: all losers.
1: I mean, I love, I love I'm, the, I'm the number one loser. No,
5: I, I wouldn't say that. You've got a successful law practice, so you can't be that much of a loser, mind you. Then again, so is Greg Presland.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope to be as much of a winner one day as Greg. <laughs>
5: Oh, dear. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny you talk about the green room because I've always uh, viewed the green rooms in media, and it's, it's a number of years since I've done that. In fact, it'd be more than you know, basically since 2014. So what's that, seven years? Uh, no more, eight years. Yeah, so um, whenever I was in the green room, I used it as an opportunity to sledge very hard and very robustly those people so that they yeah. got wound up like a Cox, clock spring and then when you go on with them uh they're still wound up and then i adopt yeah. a patient and calm demeanor <laughs> and they they look uh, uh completely manic and if you want to have a look mm-hmm. at at the results of something like that go and have a look at uh at a. Na- well, it was on the nation it was in 2012 and I was on with Brian Edwards and Bill Ralston. Now you go and have a look at that video, and uh, and you'll see my calm demeanour, and you'll see Brian Edwards losing mm-hmm. it.
1: And it's because I yeah. wound him up in the green room. There's a very good old book about that. It's called Gamesmanship, and it was uh, this guy who wrote it. It was it's like you know, it's hard to read because it's all old tiny language. You know, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not well written by today's standards, but it's all about the art of of winning. By not cheating, but doing the next thing next to cheating, and you know, in <laughs> terms of hey, how, how, how you get one over people psychologically, um, and you know, it's things like you know if you're playing tennis with them, and you know, they, they call the ball out, you know how to react in a way that will, you know, just ruffle their feathers and you know, make them feel like you know they're being accused of cheating or being unfair, but without actually saying it, and how yeah. you just really put people off their game. It's called, yeah, it's called Gamesmanship. It's a, it's a great little book. And maybe I should use that more often. Maybe I'd come across better on TV if I uh, if I was willing to play the game a, a bit more. Unfortunately, I'm a complete pussy too. So, you know, here we go. I'm one of the people who's completely nice to people on uh, in the green room because uh, I, I, I just can't stand the uh, awkwardness of, of argument face to face. I've always been a writer rather than a talker.
5: Uh, this is coming from a lawyer, you know, whose entire uh, life really revolves around arguments.
1: Well, I, I'm a commercial, you know, I'm, I'm a commercial lawyer, right? Like I, I'm always about trying to get the deal done, right? And the way you get, to get the deal done isn't by putting, getting people's backs up. And no. it's about actually, it's about being constructive. It's about guarding your uh, client's interests. and But, you know, your client wouldn't come to you if they didn't want a deal to be done one way or the other, I always kind of think of the law I do as this, as the sort of solution oriented stuff. And, you know, if it gets to the arguments floor, if we, get, if we need arguments, then we, we give it to a barrister at that point. Mm. But, you know, like it's, I've never, I've, have you ever convinced anyone of a political point by getting their backs up and and, and arguing with them and putting them in a position where they can't concede? I I, I I never have. I've always thought it's better to try and let them talk themselves into it by asking questions
5: and that's the approach that I prefer now with politics. You know, I've interviewed all sorts of people that I just do not agree with them in any way, shape, or form. But just let them talk, and then we can, mm. you know, like Chris Trotter and I, have very good discussions, even though we're pretty much implacably opposed to to the solutions or the the mm. differing solutions that we have. But but the but Chris and you know even Matt McCartan, they're they're good people at heart and they want yeah. the same results for New Zealand. They just have a different way of wanting to achieve yeah. those results. Hmm. And, you know, you'd know in business, uh, as much as in politics, there's no right way to do anything. There, there's a way. Oh, you're right. There's a way yeah. to do something, right? Let's, let's find some common ground. And, and this is the thing that I find fr- so frustrating. We've nearly had 30 years of MMP, but we've still got this adversarial, you know, we're right, You're wrong, or we won, you lost, eat that type mentality in politics. When everybody who voted for MMP had this motherhood and apple
1: Mm -hmm. pie that they'll all work together now and be nice. It's an interesting point that you raise about that because I've often thought about it, which is, uh, you know, MMP was supposed to herald in, as you say, the sort of era of consensus based politics, you know, Mm. and it would be um, you'd have more working across the aisle because you'd have a multiplicity of parties represented in parliament. But while well, we got the electoral system, but we kept the FPP mentality. You know, we 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 had with a hundred plus years of FPP in our political culture, and you can't just graft, you know, a new electoral system onto it when the culture's still the same. And so, something that was really interesting to me, and I just I can't wonder if the damn can't help but one of the dams broken on it a, a little bit this election, is how you know we still had this long term trend where we had all these little parties sort of in that sort of in the mid 90s mm. and they would all die out as they you know um you know Peter Dunn's career died out and all that sort of stuff and there was a trend towards sort of back to a two-party system and then this election it's kind of exploded all that right and you've got um you've got these minor parties winning electorate seats and mm. I just wonder if you know we're finally starting to we may be doing MMP as it was actually intended to be done you know which is I think is bad because I'm against MMP but we might finally be, you know, getting getting there as it was intended to be. Yeah,
5: I'm a, I'm against MMP too, but we've had two referendums on this. Yeah, it is not changing change, right? So anytime you put put in a, a comment on a site or something about the electoral system, you'll always get somebody who says, Oh, but we'd we'd be better with STV. It's look, it's pointless even talking about it. We're not having it.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's similar to um it's like fantasy politics, right? It's like it's like talking about a UBI or yeah. a wealth tax. It's, it's just you know like it's maybe it's a fun academic exercise, but yeah. like politics is actually about the practicalities of getting stuff done. And you know that's, that's always you know it's, it's the critic. There was a there was a piece in the um in the spin-off today about how some there was a green voter who was saying, "Oh, I've just realised now that you know voting for the Greens isn't going to actually you know get a wealth tax. It's not going to get these big things done." <laughs> it's like no, it never and it, it never was. You know, like it's the, the, you know, politics is always the big parties, they make the decisions on the big things. And if you want, if a small party, you might get some concessions. And the trick for the small parties is to get those, make those concessions as meaningful as possible. And that's why I'll be really interested to see what New Zealand First rings out of national this time around. Because I think New Zealand First is, it's a really interesting position compared to where it's been in the past. Well, let's just dial, go back a little bit to 2017. And
5: this is from... I'm interested in your perspective here as a National Party person because in 2017, Bill English led the National Party. They came first, if you want to use, you know, that analogy. They had the the most votes. The Labour Party came second, and they were a long way short of where National was, but them and the Greens plus New Zealand First added up to more than what National had. And ACT Act was only one seat, then. And so with the benefit of hindsight, uh, we can now look back and then say, well, did Winston Peters do the right thing? Now, a lot of National Party people on my website would say Winston Peters betrayed the country because he didn't go with the National Party. And I always thought that was rather arrogant from a national supporter to expect that Winston Peters would go with them because they were the largest party. What are your views on that?
1: I think there was always a real cope, like that idea that the biggest party is owed the chance to form a government. It's just, it's never been something that's ever been talked about until the National Party started being the biggest party, right? Like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's sort of, that's the, born, that's the most unattractive part of the National Party coming out, which is the, the born to rule sort of mm. thing. And so, you know, as you say, Mr. Peters was in a position where he could negotiate with both sides um, a negotiation is pointless unless you're realistically going to go with either side, you know, yeah. like it's if, 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 there's no real negotiating unless you've got a walk away position, right? And I just think the National Party screwed up the negotiations, frankly. And I think, you know, they 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 had Stephen Joyce and Paula Bennett in the negotiation team. Mm-hmm. Winston Peters was suing Paul, like Paula Bennett at the time. So, you know, it may not have been the dream team in terms of like who they chose to negotiate. And then, from my understanding, and I don't know if this is true or not, it's just an understanding I have, is that they basically insulted the guy by offering him, you know, all the baubles, thinking that's what he was all about, and that's such a such a fundamental misunderstanding. Of St. Peter's to think that he's he's just about that because he is about that. You know, the the baubles are are important, but like he he believes in stuff, right? Like he, he's not a complete grifter. Like he's got mm. beliefs. He, yeah. he, he wouldn't have had that political career. He has, has had if he didn't fundamentally believe in stuff. But I just think the national party just read it wrong and they just insulted him. And I think, you know, if there's any truth to the idea that they suggested he be the speaker this time around, you know, same mistakes again, you know, there just is, that inability. That, is, that to, is exactly
5: what they were doing. And, you know, yeah. and again, they're repeating the same mistakes. I mean, they were putting it about, I mean, it was hilarious. Where I live, um, you know, a couple of floors above is a mate. He's a true blue neck, And uh, just before the election, like the Thursday before the election, he was saying, oh, you know, it's terrible. We need to be voting for national because we need to have a government straight away because we need to get into it. We can't waste any time. And then over the weekend, uh, or this was the week before, then over the weekend we had Chris Bishop come out and say pretty much exactly that. And then I knew that this was a talking point that had been pushed out into the electorates to the supporters that we need to have an emphatic result so that we can get on with make you know governing because we we can't waste any time. And I I said to my mate, mate, you're not aware of the statutory requirements. We've got to wait twenty days for the for the special ones. Yeah. You know that's so anti-democratic what you're saying. You're asking a government to be formed, I mean, unless it was so totally emphatic like Labour was at the Mm -hmm. end of, you know, in 2020. The reality is, though, we've got this fractured electorate where Labour was really in it until the last six weeks and then it just collapsed. But, you know, you had the arrogance of national thinking that they were going to get a two-party solution when we haven't had a two-party solution in, like, forever.
1: Yeah, apart from that time where we had a one party solution. <laughs> you're yeah. right. I mean, and every other and how did that all work? Every other election's been hung. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Every, every single, if you take the definition of a hung parliament, is a parliament in which no one party or pre agreed coalition of party yeah. uh, sort of wins on election night. So we've had every single election, par- bar the, the previous one, has been a hung parliament. So you're, you're, you're right there. In terms of that strategy, you know, in terms of saying you vote, vote blue or, you know, get chaos or whatever. Uh, well, what I do know is I know, I do know that it was a deliberate strategy. Uh, I don't know how well it worked, but I, I, for one one piece of evidence that it was, there was some thinking behind it, um, pretty weak. But so my, my wife, she told me that she was probably going to vote for Labour, you know, just because she's a school teacher type. But she's one of those people who has sort of strong feelings about Winston And sort mm. of is, she's quite anti um, And, you know, people have very polarized opinions about Winston She's one of them So she came to me and she said Honey, do you think I, I said, look, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I need to vote national Which would be the first time ever in her life To make sure that it's not a um, Winston Peters hung parliament You know, blah, blah, blah and I said, of course I said to her, Of course, honey, you must vote. Yes, that's right. You should vote for national. Um, that's the exact, exact right thing to do. Um, so I she she I I went away, um, came back the day after election, um, after being in Auckland for election day. And I said, How'd you vote, honey? She said, I didn't vote in the end. I didn't, didn't you know, I just well, I just couldn't bring myself to do it, other things to do. And I didn't, you know, I was I was that sort of depressed about it and you know, I wasn't thinking, feeling great about it, so I just mm. didn't vote. So I just wonder, you know, whether or not, you know, like how if that message was targeted at that sort of type of voter. I mean, it didn't work because we didn't get it to the polls to vote for blue, but it might have kept it from voting red. I Mm. don't know. We'll have to see how all that played out. I mean, there'll be a New Zealand election study that comes out and it's going to be really interesting to see. But you're right. I think, you know, it's always going to be the case, this election that there was going to be. I mean, it's been obvious for about a year, right? There was going to have to be Mm. National Act in New Zealand First.
5: It's what I've been saying for a year, and all these national and ACT people were going, "No, no, no! It's going to be just national and ACT." You know, at the end of twenty, you know, about October twenty twenty two, ACT was sitting at fifteen, sixteen, even up to eighteen percent in some polls. Yeah, um, you you have to say uh, that David Seymour had an appalling campaign, really.
1: Thank you, thank you for saying that. Because everyone keeps talking about ACT as if they had this great campaign on the basis that they won Tamaki. They they added one extra MP. <laughs> you know, it was they, they went from being the most disciplined overperformers of the Parliament to completely dropping the ball in the campaign. Completely. Yeah. Well, they lost. They lost let's so just many. discuss voters. that A
5: little bit. I mean, let's just look at that because you're absolutely right. They were overperforming. They were the opposition. National was playing uh we're just like Labour but less crap. Right. That was that was their game. That's the game that worked in 2008 yep. for John Key. They were John Key was advising Luxon right through this election campaign. They were yep. making themselves a very, very small target. Um they were the pitch to the electorate was we're like Labour, but less crap and they they actually forgot the next part of that is that they're actually asking people to vote for crap. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. but Act was the the party that was performing. They had uh, got the uh, shooting community on board. Uh they had a couple of MPs off the basis of that in the in the 2020 election. Uh and they were polling in, you know, October, September, yeah. October, twenty twenty two, and very high rates, and and people were actually talking about them catching up with national. and
1: then so they, you're right, and um, they, they made huge inroads into the uh, rural farming sector, you know, out where I live. I yeah. mean, I went to so many visit with clients and on the farm, and so often you know, say, well, actually, you know what, I think we're going to vote for ACT this time around. You know, it was like a real thing that as the National Party saw it was sort of like worrying to me. I was like, you know, is the farm vote being sort of shaken loose in the National Party because of the strong political performance of David Seymour? But then in the campaign, I think they did a couple of things. First of all, they just just started to believe their own bullshit a bit too much about, (laughs) you know, and they got, you know, like it was a sort of just got over their skis a bit and, got ahead of themselves. But the other thing, classic mistake is, you know, get picking a fight with Winston Peters. Why the hell would you do that? Why would you make your campaign as the leader of the Act Party uh, getting into a fight with Winston Peters, who is so much more of a talented politician than you, and, you, and you, you're bringing more and more attention, more and more contrast to Winston Peters, who's actually fundamentally quite a charismatic politician. And, you know, that billboard in Auckland, uh, you know, the act party billboard featuring Winston Peters, you know, saying, Don't get fooled again. For God's sakes, it could look like a New Zealand first. Um, well, it was, yeah, uh, you know, you know,
5: I, when I saw that, I thought, Oh, that's awesome. That's a great billboard that Winston's put up. And then I phoned I, I yeah. him, I said, to, oh, Well done on the billboard. And he says, It's not mine. I said, What do you mean? He says, It's the act parties. And I said, Well, it's got, a, <laughs> it's got a quote that you could have said. I said, you know mm. what you should do is you, I said to him, you should just start saying, yeah, X yeah. um, got some good advice there. Don't get fooled again. You know, vote for mm-hmm. New Zealand first. So, you know, it was bizarre.
1: you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of um, of the referendum campaign in 2011 for MMP, to go back to that. And uh, in fairness, I think a lot of us thought this was a good strategy at the time, which was to say, ditch MMPs, don't make Winston... You know the Kingmaker. You know remove his Kingmaker status by getting rid of E.M.P. and that was a an election uh, uh, where Winston Peters was out of he wasn't he was he came back into Parliament after being out of it. All it did was uh, sh- sort of draw attention to Winston Peters and his enduring relevance to New Zealand politics. And a campaign where Winston doesn't need to have thirty percent of the population um, like him. You know Winston, oh. Winston only needs five percent. B- between five yeah. and ten percent is a great result. So the more and more attention you draw to Winston, the more and more you start fighting with him, the stronger you make him. And so what I wonder about ACT is, is ACT still a strong enough party as a party that it can look sort of introspectively at how its campaign went and it can learn those lessons? Or has it become so dominated by David Seymour and Brock Van Velden that, you know, like it's their party now? And so they'll they'll just have the sycophants who say, "Look, you know, you did great. It was amazing. You know, right. you held up while national. Yeah, yeah." And I and you know, if ACT is still a strong party, they'll take some serious lessons out of this campaign. But you know, I'm, I'm an eternal pessimist. I, d- I doubt they will.
5: Look, I, I know a, a fair few people who are ACT supporters, and some who have actually been on the board of the ACT party, and they've got nothing to do with the ACT party now because of David Seymour and. Yeah, uh, especially you know, his behaviour during COVID, all of that sort of thing. But I don't think they had. What, what did he do? Well, he was suggesting that yeah. there were vaccination buses that would go door to door and drag people out of their homes oh. and vaccinate them. You know, okay. Uh, his doctrinaire and arrogant uh, behaviour uh, towards the Wellington protests, um, yeah. you know, all of that sort of stuff, and in the and, and act people. Uh, in my experience, are generally uh, very libertarian, very free thinkers. Yes.
1: Funnily and, enough,
5: you know, and that's the thing. In 2022, David Seymour was running around the country holding free speech meetings. Mm. That's how they got the the percentage up there. He was talking. Yeah. The, he was talking the talk, but when it came to walking the walk he was decidedly crippled
1: in his outlook. Yeah. So, so, so to push my own barrow a little bit on, on it too. Like, I think something that happened was like, he's um, like, you know, as, as like I'm, I'm one of the minority New Zealanders who's a church goer, right. I go to mass every Catholic, I go to mass every week. And, um, you know, it's an important part of my life, even though mm-hmm. I, you know, make lots of mistakes and I sin constantly, but it's still something that's important to me. And, and a lot of those people, obviously, you know, um, People of my tribe, you know, thinking National was not really that, sh- you know, strong of a supporter of our liberties and all that. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of people who, vote, you know, who, who sort of in that way inclined who supported Act. But Seymour is so arrogant about Christians and uh, antagonistic towards them. Uh, and he did, when he did an interview with Bob McCroskey, and what do you think about Bob? Oh, that was an Bob appalling McCroskey. interview. Oh, no. And then, so then, you know, I'll tell you something. Do you know who's not going to insult religion, <laughs> Christianity? Winston Peters. No. You, know, you know, he's just Mr. Peters is not that no. dumb, you know, like I don't, I don't know what Winston's religion is, probably nothing. But like he's oh, respectful no, he, enough. He, he of,
5: has faith. Um, you know, I've had yeah. discussions with him about that. Um
1: Well, he's uh, he's respectful enough, right? And which yeah. Seymour just doesn't you know doesn't respectful.
5: I mean, Bob McCrostery yeah. is the most inoffensive person you can meet. I mean, he's congenial, he's um yep. jovial, uh he, he talks about some serious things, but but the way David Seymour uh, acted in that interview was just appalling. You know, and, and, you yeah. know uh, as a person and, of and faith, McCroskey's I really power. struggle with politicians in, in, yeah. um, uh, in, in general, and especially politicians who profess a faith uh, but are involved in politics. You know, and Christopher Luxon's one of those where he's, you yeah. know, says he's a Christian, but when he's questioned on it, he get, he's very squishy indeed. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how you can exist in politics and have a Christian outlook on life. Uh, because politics and by necessity involves lying and deception and dissembling you know, and <laughs> all these things right.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because I think it's exactly true. you know, and it's one reason, it's one reason out of many why I probably didn't even wanted to go into politics myself, despite thinking it would be quite fun in a lot of ways. You just have to make too many compromises, right? Like the way to mm. get power is to compromise, compromise way all the way through, and to the point where you know you're doing things that you say that you're diametrically opposed to because it's the expedient thing to do. Uh, I I don't like politicians talking about their religion for that exact same reason. I'd rather not know about it. But the thing is, with Bob McCroskey is he's got thousands of followers, yeah. right? Like he does. There's networks of thousands of people, and the ACT Party just doesn't have the margin. To annoy people like that uh, when when they've got Winston Peters as an alternative, yeah, well,
5: that's exactly right. And you're you're right too about you know politicians have to compromise all the time. That's why I'm never going to be a politician yeah. I, because I've got principles I will not uh, compromise on. And you know, uh, part of the the rehabilitation of of me and what I do around politics is that I've put faith at the centre. Of everything in my life, and so I won't compromise on that. Yeah,
1: um, you, yeah know, we, you know, you know,
5: you know, something you, you, that's important, and and you can't, mm. you just can't uh, <laughs> be involved in politics and have faith uh, at the centre of your life.
1: You know what? A lot of people, I think, would um, would would have a lot of scorn for you, saying that you're putting faith at the centre of your life. What I always okay. say to people, though, is you know, religion isn't like a club for people who are really good; it's a field hospital. For, for those of us who need to work on our lives constantly, you know, like it's it's, a, it's for us, we, people like you and me, we need it because we need healing, you know, like we're, yeah. we're not great people, you know, we make mistakes, we've made mistakes, we've all made mistakes in our life. That's the reason to have faith, not because of, uh, you know, because you're uh, some pure and good person. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I don't like politicians talking about it, because they're never talking about it in terms of their own need for salvation or healing, or to be fixed in some way. They always use it as a, uh, you know, as an example of why they are good people, why the what's what's good about them, not what's bad about them. Well, so they people, should just not talk about it.
5: Exactly, and you know, people forget though. Jesus said himself said that he, without sin, cast the first mm. stone. And he was in that, he was there in the crowd and he didn't pick a stone up either. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and mm-hmm. that's the thing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the church I go to um, every Saturday, we've got a big sign up, Um, you know, it's in Papatoe, it's got a big yeah. sign up and it says, come as you are.
1: Come a a, a, a Seventh-day seventh yeah. Adventist. Yeah, oh, Seventh-day cool. Adventist, yep. Yep. yep.
5: So, you know, come as you are, and there's all types that come there, you know, gang members wearing patches and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, it's, a field,
1: it's a field hospital. It's a field hospital right. for sinners. We're,
5: we're all sinners. But that's the other thing, too, that I find a lot of people don't understand what the word sin is. I mean, for a start, the word sin in English didn't exist before um, about 900 A.D., right it's a ge- Is that right? it's a proto germanic word okay uh, the original greek from the bible and translations means to miss the mark right yes. so ah. so for me being this will be hard for you as a catholic
1: right <laughs> go for it right a lot of things but, are hard for me as a catholic but but i
5: look at <laughs> in, in, in a shooting analogy right so if i go out to the gun club and i'm shooting uh, trench there's 25 uh, targets, and I do it, and I shoot and I shoot 20 out of 25. Do I now, like, pack up and go, I'm not very good at this. Um, I'll quit now. Mm. Uh, I missed the mark on on four, yeah. on five of those targets. Mm. Or it'll, if you're shooting, you know, at a target downrange somewhere and you get, you know, out of 100, you might get 95. Do you now pack up your rifle and go, oh, I'm yeah. not going to do any more of that? Or do you keep practicing and try and hit the mark more?
1: Yeah, that's a ter- right. that's a terrific analogy. Yeah, I might just steal that one at some point. <laughs>
5: yeah. So, I mean, that's what I do. I have these mm. discussions all the time with friends and people, and they're going, "Oh, you know, but yeah, you, know, you say you're a Christian, but you do this and you do that." Yeah. I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm Mister Mark, but yeah. you know, I'm trying to minimise that."
1: Imagine how bad I would be if I wasn't a Christian. That's what I say to people. <laughs> yeah. They you can really see some bad stuff then. <laughs> and for years,
5: you know, I was a token Christian. I'd say I was a Christian. Mm. Uh, I changed all of that in the last couple of years. So good I for you, you what, mate. I'll tell you what focuses your mind, nearly dying. Yeah. Well, it came within a gnat's whisker uh, mm. of dying, and uh, you sit there and take stock, and uh, I decided to make some changes. It took me five years to make those changes. Yep. but you know, I think I'm in a better
1: place now because of that. Well, you, you certainly seem very philosophical now, um, <laughs> you know, and um, and good on you. Like, like, but we're all a work in progress, right? Like, it's just that uh, unfortunately for you, Cameron, is that you know you you're a work in progress in public, and yeah. you know, and you know, if you mo- the, the mistakes I make in life that. You know i don't they're private you know people don't uh, aren't jumping Mm. all over me i mean one day i'll make a really bad bad mistake and then i've got enough enemies at this point that they'll really go for me in public but you know like it must be an additional burden just knowing that um you know because of your political blogging you've just got people who are willing to pounce on everything you're willing to every, every misstep you make uh, and, you know, the, I guess the, b- the big thing is, is, I hope you just don't care about them anymore or don't care about what those people think.
5: No, I don't care about them. Um, I, you know, I get every time I say something on X, you know, you'll get somebody who says, oh, you're irrelevant or, uh, yeah. it, almost everything you say is wrong, and in my response to them now—I mean, before I would have attacked them or ridiculed them. Yeah. Now I either ignore them or I just say, "And yet here you are."
1: Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Shall we? Um. Shall we talk about the election a bit more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Now you've written a, a memo Pat. to Christopher Luxon on your Substack, The Blue Review. Tell us about that. Yeah.
1: Well, look—I mean, I think. Um, fundamentally, this election, Labor lost the election because people, you know, have just lost faith in Labor's ability to deliver things that matter, right? Like, you know, we talk endlessly about all oh, this, you know, the, the debate meant this and the debate meant that or look at this, um, you know, misstep that happened. But, you know, people, people can't afford to fill up their cars with petrol, you know, like it's, yeah. you know, the, the pain at the pump, the pain at the grocery toll matters so much more. The fear of going to the hospital ED waiting room matters so much more than anything else. So the first mandate that Luxon's got, I think, is that he just has to somehow, and I'm I'm not hopeful even really that he can do it, but they've they've got to concentrate on fixing those, getting the basics right. Now, you might say, uh, and plenty of people on the right will say, well, you're just promising to manage stuff better that already exists and it's like, yeah, actually, that's the first thing, right? Mm. Like, you know, first first, prove that you can be competent and then people might trust you to implement, you know, more changes. But you've got to, if, if national can't get on top of the cost of the living crisis and broken public services, they're, they're going to they're look like a one-term government very, very fast. Um, there'll be lots of people who are going to be, you know, you know, you know how it is, you know, mm. you know, new government coming into place. There are jobs up for grabs for people on the right yep. and there'd be a whole lot of people putting their hands up, wanting jobs, you know, uh, flooding in people who have been fair-weather friends in in the past, not principled enemies but, you know, mm. sort of fair-weather friends. They'll be coming in trying to sell the National Party on, you know, doing this or that or having some sort of vision about this but I think that, I just think Lux and the, the testing of him in the next 12 months he's going to have to work with Seymour and Peters and prioritise actually just making the making those broken things work better. If you can do that, he will get a big second um, re-election, and that's the time that you might try to implement some serious reforms. Yeah, But I mean, don't Matt, run before you can walk.
5: Yeah, Matt McCartan uh, is the one who taught me an analogy that New Zealand politics is a game of two halves. Uh, we have a three-year electoral cycle, um, but but each every three years is is a half of a game. So you get elected, yeah. the voters uh, watch you in the first half of the game, the, the three, first three years. If they think you're doing okay, then you get to play the second half and you get another yeah. three years. And if you've done okay in that, then they might let you play another game. But under MMP, we've never had a four-term government. The yeah. last four-term government we had was uh, Keith Holyoaks, uh, you know, which is decades ago. So the yep. reality is, is you get to play a game and a half if you're partially competent. It's if you're that, dreadfully it's- incompetent, you get to play yeah. either a half game or you get a full game and then you don't get another one.
1: That's a good analogy. The way I often think about it is I've often thought about politics as being similar to a commercial lease. You know, you get you got uh, yeah, three, five, three, five
5: plus five plus five, or,
1: or three by three by three. You know, yeah. and so you, you get three by three by three. So you get to renew it um, those three those three times, but you're not allowed to exercise the right of renewal uh, unless you're not in breach, right? So if you're in, if you're in breach of, of as a as a tenant, then the landlord can refuse, you know, yeah. to to let you renew the lease, and that's kind of how it is, right? Yeah, like it's a good analogy too. Yeah, there's there's not there's not depressing commercial lease analogy. Uh, cam which is the ratchet clause um and the, the ratchet clause is is the, is the clause that says the rent can go one way it can be increased on a yes. regular view but it can never be decreased it operates like a ratchet and unfortunately uh and for for us the ratchet effect in terms of commercial leases in terms of politics is is government programs government, right? spending. government spending yeah it can go one way and then you know to get in you've got to keep promise to continue it. You gotta swallow the dead rat of working for families. Uh, and uh, and that's where the pessimism comes in, I guess. But my 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 view and my, my advice to the national is listen, you've got to get some runs on the board quickly on, on making things work because this country just feels so broken. You know, you we were talking before about how hey, you had to go to the E D and you somehow got in got in within ten minutes. But yeah, yeah. you know, I, I I was lucky, I think. I think. Yeah, well, it must be, because I've had to take my kids to the ED a couple of times in the last year, and just, you know, the fear of going and having to wait with your kids, and what's like purgatory, sorry to use a Catholic idea, but, you, you know, the purgatory of the waiting room, sitting there with all the drunks, you know, who are vomiting mm. their guts out, and, mm. and, and you have to wait five, six hours, you know, and you get to that... Th- that three hour point and you're thinking, do I just, is it fine? Do I just go home and come back, you know, go to the GP? I've waited for three hours. What, you know, what if they're going to call me in the next half an hour? That is the type of stuff I think that just makes New Zealanders in such a depressed mood at at the moment. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but man, Peters, Seymour and um, Luxon have got to get some runs on the board on that type of stuff. I mean,
5: there are some huge things, you know, if we look at what Labour promised, they promised the earth in 2017 and did did it again in 2020. And they they delivered the leavings uh, of a post of a, of a pothole basically in in terms of uh, achievement. And I'm not sure that they're going to be trusted for a long, for a long, long time, but that will only be true. If what you say is correct, that national gets the basics. I mean, We've gone from government spending of around sixty billion dollars per annum to one hundred and sixty billion.
1: Yeah, I know. We've got incredible eh? no
5: discernible increase in services or anything else, and it seems the only metric that the Labor government had was that we'll spend more money than you can imagine.
1: It's incredible when you think about it. It's kind of like this: this New Zealand disease, you know, the New Zealand disease where you can. Everything, everything, you know, everything costs more now. You get less of it, you know. Everything, everything is is over over budget, over, you know, behind schedule, and you know, there's just like nothing in this country works. That's how it feels. I don't know if that's the mood elsewhere in the Western world, but man, like it didn't listen. It didn't feel that way when I was a kid, you know. Like it just didn't feel that way then.
5: Well, I'll give you a, a, a more personal analogy. I was born in Fiji, right? And um, periodically I go back there and, and, you know, five years ago, uh, I spent a considerable amount of time there in 2018, uh, came back and had a stroke, and then that's why I haven't been back since. But uh, in Fiji, doing simple things is almost impossible, like going to get a driver's license, right? You basically have to set aside at least a day to, go, to um, go and get into the queue, you have to queue to get into the queue. Yeah. And then you get given a number yeah. and you queue again to be called and you think you've got everything right and then some guy sits there with a clipboard and a pen and you get down the page and something's missing and instead of mm-hmm. trying to solve it right then and then he goes, oh no, no, you haven't got this denied and then you've yeah. got another day to do that. If you want to go to the bank, Uh, if you're an ordinary citizen in Fiji, you want to go to the bank, there's queues out the door and around the corner. Now, this is the tragic thing about it, right, in Fiji. If you're a European and you go to the bank, they come out and pull you out of the queue and deal with you separately, which is appalling, Mm -hmm. but that's how they operate, right? And everything in Fiji grinds to a halt because of the bureaucracy. And I've yeah. been seeing over the last five, six years in New Zealand exactly the same thing happening with this overabundance of, of bureaucracy and bureaucratic procedures and policy, and it's grinding everything to a halt. And But it started 30 years ago. It started yeah. when Simon uh, Upton brought in the Resource mm-hmm. Management Act, the yep. single worst piece yep. of legislation ever to be foisted on the New Zealand population.
1: And no one will so, do anything about it so that's a classic example of a guy who's really clever mm-hmm. you know with all the right intentions yep you know g- g- give me give me a dummy who understands his limitations any day I think yeah. uh, over a smart ass you know' There's a, the fiji thing you see this really interesting for, for two reasons one one quite personal um she's a bit of light on of something personal for me I took my kids on a like a cheap Fiji holiday when they yep. um three kids and um like it was a quite a like i don't mind telling you this it was a time in my life and i was under a lot of a lot of stress and i've sort of had a very bad anxiety disorder which i had refused to do anything about to get it diagnosed typical kiwi bloke and i had yep yep you know I, well you know just you know i just thought you know i just have to get through one more day one more day it'll be fine and i had this horrible panic attack you know when i got to fiji and at the resort. And, the, and I was convinced I was having a heart attack, which are just I, you know, it's awful. I know what you mean. Yeah, it was like this most excruciating pain. But anyway, the I, the doctor in Fiji, he was really, the, in the um, in the resort, he was really nice. He he said, oh yes, I've been to Palmerston North. That's a nice quaint little place. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> but he said, listen, you have you have to go to the um to, to a medical center because nothing I'm going to tell you is going to convince you that you're not having a heart attack. You have to have an ECG. So I went there and. They basically saw me straight away. They, you know, they dusted off this, you know, ancient machine like it was from the 1850s or whatever, and they gave me an ECG and they gave me a bill and I went up and, you know, paid the bill and all said and done, it was probably about 90 minutes, you know, had the reassurance that I didn't have a, wasn't having a heart attack. And it hadn't occurred to me until now, you know, that uh, for whatever reason, you know, like it would probably take, you know, I probably got the, the, the first class service there, right? Like that mm-hmm. was, if I was a Fijian, they would have told me to go home, right? Is yeah, that probably how my, it would
5: be? It breaks my heart every time I go back to Fiji. Uh, you know, and I I don't usually go to the resorts, right? I, I was born in Suvo. Yeah. It feels like home when I get off the plane at the airport. You know, I get in the cab to take me to the hotel, and the guy says, oh, where are you from?" They always ask, want to know where you're from, and I was yeah. "Right here, huh." Oh, yeah. You're, you're a Kaiviri, yes. And then then they know to take me directly to where I'm going because they know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. Yeah. But it breaks my heart when you see, like, I mean, the house that we lived in was in Suva Point. It's some of the most expensive real estate in Suva. Uh, you know, houses there are over a million dollars. Uh, Fijian, yep. uh, and yet 200 meters from there is the largest squatter settlement in Suva, yeah. You no, know, and there are people living cheek by jowl, literally in, in ramshackle huts. But so, you also look th- at that and you see these kids coming out of there, yeah, going to school, and their shirts are immaculate and white, and yeah. they've got this beaming smile and this. Pride of going to school, and I sit there and I think, you know, Kiwis don't realise how well
1: off we actually are. Yeah, I know. I couldn't agree more. And and I had I had conflicted feelings about the whole thing because you know I'm a bit of a cheapskate, and so you know it was something I promised the family would do, but I got the cheapest possible resort, right? So we we got we got to the uh, Nandi Airport, we got into the uh, exchange, and uh, the, 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 the sorry the um the transfer, and you know like you know, a whole lot of families and the resorts were nicer. It was not nice to begin with. And they got more and more dilapidated as we yeah. got on. And the kids were like, is this one house?" I was like, no, way too nice. Just wait. So we got, it was, it was fine. You know, it was a sort of, it was a comfortable sort of seventies era, quite family friendly one, but it was first time I'd been overseas in a long time. First time I'd been to Fiji and the people were just so lovely and polite. And, and, and it was a the, the place was full of Australians, you know, like, you know, loud, obnoxious Australians. Well, we went for a walk along the um, along the coastline, the beach, and right right next to the resort, right next to it was where the you know like I guess the village where the, all the yeah. people who worked there lived, and it was like from one thing to the next, you know it was like comfortable, you know, um, you know not luxury because it was a you know it was an older resort, but you know Western comfort right next to this grinding poverty, mm. uh, and yet the people who uh, you know came who worked in the in the resort you know had no they were lovely to our kids they were lovely to us they were lovely to the boorish um, rude Australians who would just you know so, you know beckon to them and, and things like that and it was it was it really jarred with me as a Kiwi because of course I guess as New Zealanders we pride ourselves on sort of not having that sort of class awareness um but and but at the same time like I presumably they were quite good jobs that, you know, people wanted and they wouldn't have otherwise. So I just felt conflicted about about the whole thing. But one thing you're really right about is that those communities, they really do pride and take, they take a lot of pride and they take a lot of, um, uh, What's the word? The word is gratitude in terms of the educational opportun- yeah. opportunities that are available to them uh, when they are available. And we just take this for granted here. You know, we we are we are living off the capital well, of we've, we've the got hard si- work of yeah. previous generations. Well,
5: we've got a situation where more kids are not attending school than are attending school in some areas. Yeah. You know, and, and, yeah. and you look at the kids in Fiji and they're desperate to go to school and learn and... They see education as a way mm. out of the mire that they're in. And, you know, this. Is, you, know, mm. you touched on why Labor lost, and it wasn't just the lack of delivery. And it's exactly the same reason why Helen Clark lost in 2008, where they've talked a big game about lifting people out of poverty. You know, Chris Hipkins and the yeah. said, we've done this, we've lifted mm. 80,000, whatever number, some fanciful number based on statistics, lifted out of poverty. But, yeah. but but I would bet you that not a single Labour politician or indeed any other politician in our parliament ever bothered to identify just one of those kids no. right? and go and ask them, how do you think, you know, you've been lifted out of poverty now, how do you feel? Because they'll say, well, mm. we haven't moved, we're in the same house, in the same street, with the same crime, going to the same rubbish schools, nothing's changed.
1: And it's been you, like that do for Do you decades. remember, there was a blog post you wrote it was a long time ago It'd probably be like in 2014 or 2013 it just comes to mind it was about there was someone who had like it was they had got they gone to the media and had complained about the their the national government mm. and and the local mp was Jacinda Ardern or she was you know she was the um, list mp who was you know standing locally or or whatever yeah. And they'd gone to the MP, the Labour MP, to, to Jacinda, and Jacinda had said something like, oh, we can put you in touch with the media. Like that was the help that they had offered yeah. to, to give them. And then the person followed up with you about how disappointing it was. Do you, do you remember that? that yeah, world? it was a
5: lady who actually lived in uh, near out near Pōkakaui, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did follow up with her. I went to her house and I saw how yeah. she lived, you know, and I spent some time with her. And she was gobsmacked that I was the only journalist who had bothered to do anything like that, you know. See you as a person. Mm. And and it's funny you you say that. I I thought the other day, I must look that person up again and see how they're getting on.
1: Yeah, Um, because they're a person, because they're a real person. They're not just a statistic or a story or an illustration, you know. I think you're right on that. Do you know the other thing that's interesting, though, is – um, and you talk about, you know, the bureaucracy and how hard it is to get things done. Is I think we take for granted that's always going to be, New Zealand's always going to be a first world country. And what we're I was not. thinking about, I'm, we're a second world at the moment. But, you know, it's so interesting how Argentina, like, you know, right before the Second World War, Argentina was more prosperous per capita than the United States. You yeah. know, it was, it was. I, got, I was on the way to being economic superpower. It was a really strong agricultural country like New Zealand. And and look at Argentina now, right? Like it's, yeah. it, it can happen, you know, oh, and it, it can happen here. Venezuela. Venezuela. At,
5: right? They've got oil, they've got abundant resources, and yet they're yep. living in grinding poverty all because of a lack of leadership. Yeah. So, so, you know, your, your memo to, to Christopher Luxon, that struck a chord. That's why I called you out and said, hey, uh-huh. let's talk about this. Um, you know, I worry too that National will be ground down yeah. by the bureaucracy, by the intransigence of the civil servants who have their own agenda in their, you know, that's the thing. You can change the government, but you never change mm-hmm. the service.
1: It's a blob, right? It's like fighting against the blob. The more mm. you punch it, the, the, the more you get sucked into it and the tighter you get. And that's why I'm a, I'm a pessimist, right? Like I think you know, Damien Grant was having me on about how, you know, not being ambitious enough in terms of the education sector, something we've talked about today. Mm. But education reforms have to be implemented by school principals and school and boards teachers. And, teachers. and, and unions. unions. In unions and and in in three years, you know, you can pass the law in three years, you're not going to get the time to do to do that. And you and, and you're not going and to fight be you able every, to force step of the way. every step of the way. And you'll give up. You look at you know? charter
5: schools, right? Yeah. The charter schools that were implemented did amazing things. And then mm-hmm. the government
1: changed and they were gone in a heartbeat. Yep. Because they only built twelve of them. You know? Yep. They didn't build it, they didn't make them too big to fail. That's the problem, right? And yeah, so so that's
5: a, the one thing that, that Labour are very, very good at doing, right? They put things in place yeah. knowing that the National Party, because of they're a party of the status quo, will invariably just adopt it. And you you raised earlier, you know, working for families. Yeah. And that was brought in. John Key was the leader of the National Party. He said it was communism by stealth, and we'd repeal it. And when, when he got in, into power... Yeah, he didn't repeal it. In fact, he extended
1: it. So that's the ratchet effect. Yeah, it can, can move one way, unless, and this is the I don't, I don't want us to have this, but unless you have a giant crash, and you know we had our giant crash in in the, in the early '80s, mm. and that gives you the leeway to fix things. You know, it's but but you know you need that crisis before you have a paradigm shift. I mean, you you know you things that can't. If they can't go on forever, it won't go on forever. But the fall, the crash is going to be, the correction is going to be really, really hard. It's going to be painful. We're going to have it, you know. Edu- it has educa- to happen. Education is a huge... I mean, you know, like we used to be world leaders in reading and maths and it's just... You know, if you don't teach your own kids reading and maths down, there's just no guarantee they're going to be literate or, or numerate. You know, yeah, we, we have gone backwards so much on that, that. Well, that's the problem is is that
5: too many people in New Zealand now, and we saw this as a result of the COVID stuff, and, and it's really accelerated now. Too many people in New Zealand expect that the solutions for anything, whether it's the education of their children or uh, the health of their children or anything else, uh, uh, completely reliant on the government, and uh, aghast when there isn't someone from the government saying, "Hi, yeah. I'm from the government." <laughs> you know, Ronald Reagan said yeah. the most dreaded words in the English language are,
1: "Hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you." Yeah, but we've but we've that's our culture now. We've we've taught ourselves to be helpless like that, right? And it's a hard thing to unlearn.
5: I mean, you know, we had constant, you know, three or so years constant advertisements on television and politicians saying. That these communities, you know, communities were vulnerable. Yeah. You know, if you tell someone they're vulnerable <laughs> for long enough, guess what? They'll become yeah. vulnerable.
1: Yeah. Give it. Give a dog a
5: bad name, right?
1: This yeah. Is, there's no difference.
5: Yeah. It's, dogs. Dogs aren't bad. Their owners are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very, very true. So,
5: just a quick summary then to wrap up because we've been talking for a, an hour or so, right? Yeah. You've got a, a little bit of hope, but there's a sense there's a sense of disappointment there with you on what you think might happen over the next three years.
1: I'm just a, I'm a pessimist, right? For all the reasons we've talked about. i I've, I've sort of been taking the view for a while now that forces and trends matter more than individual politicians. You need yeah. to have the right politician in place. But, you know, it's it's the, the broader economic and social trends are going to lead to a certain place. And and when we get to the point that it's no longer sustainable, then we'll see the change. And if I'm being honest with you, I think that the best thing that can be hoped for, for the short term, is not to make things worse, right? For a national party that will run things properly, that won't go out of its way to bring in new um, big spending programs or new social interventions, and, you know, you've just got to leave the rest up to, you know, up to the media, to the culture, to the com- communities to create the demand for the actual change. Yeah. If the knock on the National Party is that it runs communism better, I hope for a better run communist state. You know, and, but but one, one thing I can tell you is that if they don't deliver that, then we'll get the badly run version again and it'll, it'll come sooner than you think. And then the minor parties will grow even more power. They will. They will. And, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, but I'm still enough of a true blue dairy farmer's son that, you know, I have hope for the National Party, but I don't expect much. Well, on
5: that note, uh, Liam here, uh, thank you for coming on The Crunch and sharing your thoughts from a National Party perspective.
1: My absolute pleasure. And I'm sorry it was so rambling, but uh, feel free to call me back any time you want. No
5: problems. Thanks a lot. Well, who knew a discussion about politics would get a little sidetracked with a discussion about faith and the journey we end up on as we discover our faith. But there you go. Faith can and does drive some of us to try and be better humans, even in politics. Tell me your thoughts on what Liam had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057.
0: Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR.
5: Gary Moller is a nutritionist and an endurance athlete. During the COVID debacle, he popped his head above the parapet and has been lobbying against the therapeutics bill. We discuss an article he wrote for the BFD where he swapped his support from ACT to New Zealand First and do a bit of a deep dive on that, where things are heading now after the election, and discuss the lost opportunities for the freedom movement after the election. He joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch. Well,
6: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
5: You're most welcome. Now, you wrote an article for us before the election on the BFD, and you've talked about that with Paul Brennan. But I think for this discussion, it might be a good idea to do a bit of uh, just to revise what, what you said back then and, and then talk about if anything's changed in your point of view since the election that resonates with that article that you wrote for us back then.
6: Well, I guess the question is, where do we start, Cam, because uh, there are so many things to cover and so many twists and turns. And in addition to that, uh, I've spent the last week or so having a post-election detox. So, uh, yes, uh, the the original goal was that for the so-called freedom movement and uh, people who were Uh, felt they were disenfranchised, not represented by the existing political parties, we needed to get representation in parliament. And to do so, we had to get either MPs into the electorates or else have sufficient party vote to get past 5%. And so those became the criteria, the minimum. Yes. We needed to get past those thresholds And we saw from the Taronga and Hamilton by-elections, and also the Australian uh, state and federal elections, that the greatest danger for us was the splitting of the vote. Um, The proliferation of minor parties, all with admirable objectives, wonderful policies, great leaders, but um, uh, in the end, the one percenters yeah and no electorates. So we had to unite the parties. And one of the tactics that I implemented very early on was to instead of recreating the wheel is to look at a existing political party that best reflected the so-called freedom movement, yeah and adopt it
5: yeah that's and, a that's a strategy I've talked about often that yeah. people who are invested in a particular outcome and are very passionate about that and and a, a case in point is the libertarian party if you remember back in the back in the day sure. you know Lindsay Perigo um was involved with that a number of other people that I respect who have been been involved in that but ultimately they were a bunch of very uh energetic Politically aware people, enthusiastic, but were largely on the outside of the tent, shouting to be let in, and were never let in. And I had suggested to them back in the day that they should take their enthusiasm and infect other parties with that enthusiasm, and by using political osmosis, inoculate the political parties that they then join and uh, and become with their particular brand of libertarianism and freedom. And I saw that as being, you know, in this last election, another valid way of doing that. Now, you had dabbled with trying to do that with the ACT Party, didn't you?
6: Yes, well, um, well, first of all, uh, just what you were describing there, the socialists or communists infiltrating and taking over the Green Party, my Mm -hmm. Green Party, is a very good example of where, an existing political party with all of its uh, established infrastructure and in that will simply take it over. Yeah. And um we we no longer have a green party, do we? We have no. um an la New Zealand Communist Party.
5: Yeah, it's a Marxist Maoist mm. party um <laughs> yes. with, with a green tinge in reality. You know, literally, you know, they're described as watermelons, green on the outside and deeply red on the inside. And and that is true about the Green
6: Party. Absolutely. And uh, I was very involved in the Green Movement Mm. and am now deeply disappointed and disillusioned. But that aside, when I looked at the ACT Party, I looked closely at their constitution and it was as if it had been custom written 20 years ago with today in mind, with our needs in mind. It was the perfect party. So um, quietly, I rallied my friends supporters and we all started joining the act party and -hmm. we started that two years ago yeah i made sure that david seymour was familiar i copied him in on some of my correspondence and so on because i didn't want to be doing anything underhand yeah um honesty integrity those are very important big pluses but
5: also a a handicap in politics if i just Quietly, add.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're right, and we've seen plenty of that just over well, oh, just, this election we saw just, plenty of that.
5: Just take um, Jacinda Ardern. Remember, you know, she stood there before the 2017 election and told us that she'd never told a lie, and believed that um, politicians could uh, have a career in politics without lying. And uh, at the time she did that, I said, "Well, that was the first lie right there," <laughs> you
6: know, <laughs> that she had never told a lie. That's right. Yes, uh, it's, uh, well, it certainly was, uh, um, many of those examples, they're certainly real reality checks uh, as to what we have to deal with. But um, uh, Cameron, I'll do my best, my utmost to maintain my own uh, integrity and honesty and not not stoop to underhand tactics. So... We sought to um basically join the Act Party, get involved and change the the culture of it to better reflect uh, well, what you would call libertarian values, by the way. Yeah. Um yeah. freedom. But, yes, that's right. And the, the perfect party for Lindsay Perigo. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's funny, you know, because
5: David's <laughs> yes. David Seymour talks a huge game on freedom of speech. Yeah. But, but when a whole lot of Kiwis tipped up at Parliament to exercise yep. their freedom of speech, mm. he wouldn't talk to them.
6: Uh, yes, that, that was very disappointing. But um, I didn't see that as an impediment to start with. Um, so we, uh, we uh, did what we did. We joined the party. The numbers were increasing. It was proceeding very nicely. Mm. And then things changed they changed a time frame for year.
5: that so you think it was, it was early, early this year not late last year
6: um early this year things changed for us yeah yeah so but over the previous uh since the 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 first lockdowns yeah uh the idea of joining an existing party becoming it and it becoming us was the strategy and uh, i was going quietly and in addition to that testing the model and uh created began creating a website to uh, launch it as a national program. yep. And then the Therapeutic Products Act uh, sorry legislation was uh, introduced. yep and I took a read of it and went, holy shit, this yep. is terrible. This was we'd already fought it. We'd been fighting it since 2007. I'm talking about the natural health industry. yes and on each occasion that the government of the day tried to introduce it Winston Peters basically had it thrown out yep and at the same time it became obvious that Winston Peters was back in the political game yeah so we had the uh, those two things coming together Winston Peters and the therapeutic products bill and as a matter of honor we had to go with Winston Right, that's a significant change
5: to go from ACT to New Zealand First.
6: Well, yes, but um, you see, Winston had saved my bacon, my business, my friends. um, The whole, um, if we are to practice um, natural body heal-thyself medicine in New Zealand, if it is to have any chance of survival, it won't with the therapeutic products legislation. It's a it's a death sentence for any doctor, nutritionist, naturopath, herbalist, or um, anybody else who wants to practice um, uh, holistic medicine or healing might be the better word. The therapeutic products legislation was going to threaten to put all of us out of business and give the citizens of New Zealand only one choice, and that is allopathic medicine and um, basically... Patent medicines, patent remedies, and nothing else. So, is
5: this is this this bill big pharma fighting back or taking control? Even more control.
6: Oh, I I think it's. uh, uh, I've referred to the idea of klepto globalists. Yeah, and it's basically kleptomaniacs who uh, basically have got themselves in a position where they want to own absolutely everything, including. Humanity, our bodies and souls—that's the way I see it. And they won't stop unless we push back uh, firmly.
3: Mm.
5: Yeah, I've I've talked to a couple of people in this industry mm. that uh, you know one of them's now got out of the industry because he could see where it was going, and he was Mm. you know selling supplements and pretty good supplements too. I've used them myself, and um, you know I found them very beneficial, but people. they're having their livelihoods destroyed to control things that are actually not harmful. And I find it incredible that we've got a bill or an act in Parliament in place now that seeks to control things that are beneficial to people, not harming
6: people. Well, I've been trying to find um, the paper that was published about 15, 20 years ago. The coroner in Christchurch took a look at his records over the last 50 years for deaths from taking natural supplements like vitamins. And he found one death and it was sadly a child that choked to death on a vitamin pill that his mother had given him. Oh. Now that's the, in 50 years, that was the only documented uh, death that could be attributed to a vitamin supplement. Now, the fact is is that uh, vitamins and minerals, when uh, dispensed um, responsibly by people like myself, they're incredibly safe. And uh, if uh, they are to be regulated, they need to have their separate legislation that reflects uh, the degree of risk. Mm. Uh, You can't lump... A vitamin such as a vitamin C pill alongside a potent pharmaceutical drug. and uh, they have completely different risk profiles. yeah, absolutely. and we need to separate it out. It needs to be uh, there needs to be the um, legislation for drugs, big medicine, big surgery, that kind of thing. And then there needs to be legislation that covers um, natural health supplements. And by the way, The Fair Trading Act covers it. It's fine. You don't need any more. If we make a misrepresentation, then go and complain for false advertising. You know, and that'll sort it out. That's what that's what happens now. It works fine. Yeah, Yeah. I mean,
5: my experience is that there's a happy medium, isn't there, between you know uh, therapeutics. Uh, treatments, uh, you know, vitamins, those sorts of things, healthy eating, you know, I mean, but that can only go so far. I mean, there's some significant issues with healthy eating in New Zealand anyway, because our soils don't contain certain elements uh, within our soils. And so we've had to add things to foodstuffs, Uh, classic cases, iodine being added to salt, right, or Mm. folate being added to bread. Um, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, there's there are significant deficiencies within our soils and therefore the foods that we grow or the or the the meats or the fishes that we eat don't have those nutri- nutrients in them because they're just not in in the environment that we are existing well, in. So we
6: need to yes, add you're to quite, that. Yeah, you're quite right. So um, for example, um New Zealand is extremely deficient in selenium, and mm. in fact, the further south you go, the greater the deficiency. Um, so, um, d- down in the deep south, uh, there used to be a problem with what was called white muscle disease in uh, sheep and cattle. Yeah. Um, the, um, the 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 animals would um, uh, miscarry, uh, or when they were born, they would live for a few days and die from heart failure. And, um and I I always say to people look if you really want to learn about nutrition go and consult a rural vet yeah okay they they really probably know more than uh than a, a trained human uh, nutritionist for um, human health uh but um yeah so uh it's it's a it's an interesting subject and I should also point out that um uh, most of the food we, eat nowadays is nutrient depleted. Mm. You have to look at what's put on the soil, um, and that includes all the imported food. Now, it's um, mostly grown through industrial purposes where um, the nutrients that are put on the soil are the ones that make the plants grow best, but that's not necessarily what makes human beings grow the best. Yeah.
5: Yeah, 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 no, I look, I understand completely having gone through that. Uh, yeah.
6: Well, no, no, because um,
5: it's important because it's telling you it's telling listeners yeah. how you got to the point of wanting to make sure mm. that there were politicians that were aware of the bigger picture uh, on a lot of these things. Uh, and you yeah. came to the conclusion through your own personal experience that Winston Peters had a had a better grasp on the impacts of potential legislation than, you know, organisations like the National
6: Party or indeed the ACT Party? Well, more than that, uh, Cam, it seemed like come hell or high water, um, all of the incumbent politicians were going to ram this legislation through. And that turned out to be the case. Um, uh, despite the fact, uh, thousands of objections so I think it was at least 90 percent of the submissions were uh, against it and many of them were very well reasoned as well they they were serious concerns um but after the um, submissions have been heard it was only a matter of weeks before they published um, their conclusions and well, uh, the legislation you know, went through
5: so you you're experiencing disbelief I guess. Oh that this, this process happened like that. I'm, I'm far more cynical. I've been involved in politics for, for yeah. a long time, you know, and, and I have to educate people in other pati- particular areas of interest um, that I share, mm. especially around firearms. You know, everyone was saying, submit on this bill. And I said, well, there's no point submitting. And yeah. they, and said said to me, well, why? And I said, because they've already predetermined the outcome. What they're doing is giving you the illusion of consultation and so you're actually playing their game and you're playing in the system and then what they'll do is they'll take all of that consultation, they'll produce a pre-written summary that will say, well, thank you all very much for those opinions, but we're going to do this anyway because we think we know better than you. And that's the problem, isn't it, with politicians? They think they know better than us.
6: Well, yeah. And it even begs the question of somebody else pulling the strings. Um, you know, who are they working for? Are they working for the best interests of, uh, New Zealand citizens or are they working for the best interests of some other party? Okay. Mm. It, it, I mean, it does beg that question. And look, Cam, I, I didn't come down with the last shower either. And I, 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 Saw the the whole select committee process as being a uh, as being a sham. Yeah, uh, and I put in the briefest of interviews. Uh, sorry, the briefest of um, submissions myself. Yeah, uh, but decided well if we are not in the game, we can't complain. So we put in our submissions, and we knew that it was going to be just you know, brushed over and um, they were going to push it through. They were determined to push it through. We knew they were. Our only hope right from the very beginning, before we put in any submissions at all, is we knew we had to get somebody into political power who could then... Um, basically, on our behalf, throw that legislation out and replace it with something that was more suitable or in fact, just leave it as it is. if it ain't broke, don't fix it and you know, for, that's the
5: problem, um, isn't it? politicians like to tinker and improve things, and they very often cause unintended consequences
6: well the the unintended consequences is that um we have an, an, an increasingly unhealthy nation. And it's going to become even more unhealthy because they are now giving us the only option. And that is to repeat what has failed us miserably since the 1970s, which is um, basically a complete nutter reliance on patent medicines. Okay, oh, this is um, yep, goes yep. against this whole idea of uh, our bodies being genetically programmed to move towards a state of perfect health. And all we have to do as um, health professionals is nurture that, to take a, um, a loving mother nature approach to health, rather than coming in with the, let's smash and bro, okay? Come in with the big hit, you know, the B-52 napalm bombing raid, where you have uh, the treatment was a success, however, the patient died, okay? <laughs> that, that approach just does not work. We need to nurture, we need to cuddle, we need to use all of those um nice gentle terms, um, food be thy medicine. There are all these sorts of concepts which um go absolutely against the big farmer approach.
5: But it can take a different approach. I mean, I'll give you an example from my life, right? So mm. I have five years ago uh pretty much mm you know, on this weekend uh, coming up will be five years since I had a rather severe stroke. Yeah. Uh, You know, after the first 24 hours when it was really touch and go whether I was going to live or not, I started to think about how I was going to recover from this significant health event. Hmm. You know, um, I had to do the obvious things, remove stress, um, you know, do a whole lot of things like that, restructure my life around all that, but I started researching what causes strokes and what helps prevent strokes. Mm. And I came to, you know, within within two days or so, I was following up on these threads uh, and looking at peer-reviewed studies, you know, in reputable scientific papers and organizations that led me to the conclusion, and I haven't been disabused of this notion by anybody yet, that nicotine was the way that I could jumpstart fixing the neuroplasticity in my brain and that nicotine mm. and nicotine alone, uh, and there's significant studies on this uh, out of the FDA uh, in the United States and, and other places around the world, that nicotine significantly in aids in and is beneficial to developing neuroplasticity. And that strokes are caused by a lack of neuroplasticity, and that then causes a, a you know a blood vessel to shatter or break, which is in your brain, which is essentially what a stroke is. And I was sitting there thinking, and so I said to the doctor, well, can I get some nicotine patches? Well, you're not a smoker. Well, well do I have to start to get nicotine patches then? No. I said, I want nicotine patches. Why? I said, well, I need to get nicotine into my body. No, you can't do that. And everywhere I went was no, no, no in that first two weeks. And look, I don't like smoking cigarettes. They're horrible things. They're awful. They've got all sorts of other, you know, Mm. additives and things like that in there. And I very quickly came to the conclusion that I should either start smoking a pipe or cigars because the only ingredients in pipe tobacco and cigars is Mm. tobacco, nothing Mm. else. And then I worked out that smoking one cigar a day, I found a a study by the FDA in the the United States that said one to two cigars a day has negligible negative health effects on you. A longitudinal study. But smoking one cigar gives you the equivalent of nicotine of one packet of cigarettes. So here I am a week after having a stroke trying to find ways to get nicotine into my body to help with neuroplasticity being stopped by the very medical people who ignore Mm. these reports that are out there. And so I started smoking cigars one a day and people, you know, my doctor said, well, why are you doing that for? I told her, and I said, here's the studies. And she said to me, well, uh, I have to disagree, but I can't argue with the evidence. (laughs) Right. So, so when people say to me, why do you smoke cigars? Well, I smoke cigars for my health. And uh, I've got empirical evidence to support that. But if you have a look at what the government has done, or all governments have done progressively over, you know, back when Helen Clark really started the anti tobacco thing, there are actually some beneficial things that come from these products, one of which is nicotine. And, but all the legislation around smoking and around uh, tobacco products is all about nicotine, but nicotine's mm. not the problem. Right, it's everything else that's that's around the nicotine's the addictive element that's contained within those products and so they focus on that and ignore the beneficial aspects so you know well, my little journey was about diet and health and all of those things but as part of that I I, I came to the conclusion I needed to start smoking cigars
7: <laughs> right.
6: well, well it, it is it's it's really fascinating and you raise a couple of uh a couple of points here. There's increasing evidence that nicotine may be beneficial for offsetting some of the side effects from the mRNA COVID jab. I don't know whether are. And the other point, Cam, which I think I must emphasize, is that nowadays is a time when uh, it is the most wonderful time for us to be alive. Thank God for modern medicine. Yeah. Now, but we must clarify, thank God for modern emergency medicine. Yep. Right now at this time is the best time ever in history to suffer a an acute medical event or accident to be run over by a bus um, to have a stroke for example, because of the modern emergency medical treatments that are available. Um, But here's the problem. When it comes to preventing or rehabilitating after these events, when it comes to preventing diseases related to modern lifestyle, poor nutrition, exposure to toxins, aging, stress, those sorts of things, modern medicine, allopathic medicine, is a complete and utter failure, okay? We must distinguish between uh, medicine applied to those um, so-called degenerative or lifestyle or ageing-related mm. conditions and being run over by a bus or suffering a massive heart attack or a stroke.
5: Well, I mean, okay? you know, we, we don't have to look very far, though, to see... Where modern medicine or modern advice has failed us, because if you uh, look Hmm. at society in New Zealand pre nineteen fifty, we were pretty fit and healthy. There wasn't a huge obesity issue uh, Hmm. amongst New Zealanders, and yet we have an you know they call it an obesity epidemic now, And and it always makes me laugh because you can't catch obesity, right? It's not it's not it's not a virus. It's not a bacterium right? Hmm. It, it's, it's a simple fact that you've <clears throat> oversupplied your body with energy, and it's decided to do what our body is designed to do when it has abundance to store some of that energy for use at a later date, because we're probably going to go through some periods of, uh, of some yeah, scarcity. So the human body, we, we're fighting against evolution, really. The human body is designed to do yeah. that. And so we've got this obesity, they call it an obesity em- epidemic. And by saying it's an epidemic means that theoretically the solution is simple, take a pill or do something like that. But the reality is, is you actually need to expend more energy than you're putting in <laughs> to, to avoid obesity. And but nobody's prepared to use that as a, as a solution. Now, you're a nutritionist, so you know exactly mm. what I'm talking about here. It's the type mm. of things. And I have done a bit of research on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but it seems to me that the food pyramid that started to be promoted in the 1950s is probably the cause of the obesity epidemic because we're loading up on the very things that are, that the human body finds toxic, and not eating the things that we actually need to do. And and I've always found doing the opposite of the food pyramid that the medical professionals push has actually worked better for me in that I eat more protein uh, and eat more raw foods and not as many processed foods and much less grains or, you know, wheat and things like that that is right at the top. And that they tell us that this is what we should be eating the most of. Um, well, and, and the reverse yeah. of that is actually true. And so you lose weight faster if you eat a high-protein um, diet than you would if you ate, say, you know a high-gluten diet.
6: Yes, it's a little bit more complicated, but you're dead right. Um, and uh, look, I've got Dr. Kellogg's uh, home medicine book. It's a huge volume, like yep. a big Bible, which um, is a family heirloom that's been passed down through the generations of Mollers. And uh, that was published the, about 1890. Yep. And Dr. Kellogg uh, founded the Sanitarium Health Food Company. Yep. Now, it is said that... Uh, somebody came up with the idea of cornflakes yeah, and uh, probably went to James Kellogg and said, hey, doc, you know, I've got this. What do you reckon? And uh, the doc experimented with it, and he came up with a use for it, apparently, allegedly. And uh, that was um, that it was used as a remedy for young or for unmarried men who could not control their urges. <laughs> and um yeah. So, if mum and dad, successful, uh, then. <laughs> well, if mum and dad, uh, you know, caught Johnny doing something uh, mm. before he was married, um, he was sent off to Doctor Kellogg. And what Doctor Kellogg did was he fed them cornflakes to control um, those uh, urges. Right. Now, um, so that that was um, at Doctor Kellogg's sanatorium. Yeah. Okay. Now. Somewhere along the way, they must have had another conversation which said, hey, you know, these are pretty tasty and pretty popular, um, so what do we do with it? Well, somebody came up with the the idea, breakfast being the most important meal of the day. But of course, um, like I I can remember, um, you know, having to get up in the morning. Um, I'm a child from the 1950s, and um, uh, the first person out of bed had to stoke the uh, the coals in the coal range. You couldn't cook the porridge, you couldn't cook the bacon and eggs or anything until you got this the um the the range um roaring up. away with a yep. fire. Yep. The other thing is um I put myself through university by milking cows. That was getting up at four o'clock in the morning. And so I never ate until about nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, it the day always had a lot started of energy
5: for five hours.
6: Yeah, Yeah, hard physical labor um, without even a glass of water. Now, if you look at the islands, um, you look at Samoa, where my partner, um, uh, her mum and dad came from, okay, people got up before the crack of dawn and often walked several kilometers up to the fields to weed and to harvest the taro and so on. Others would be on the reef fishing and then others would be preparing the fire. Um, to be able to cook the meal, and by the time everything was gutted, prepared, and dressed, and so on, and then put into the uh, into the into the ground with the rocks, nobody had a meal until midday. Mm-hmm. So breakfast was never the most important meal of the day. It is a modern construct, and its purpose is to sell convenience foods that don't require cooking.
5: Okay. And are loaded, and most of them are loaded with sugar.
6: And well, of course, it's all, uh, yes, uh, because it's so easy. you can you can put um corn in a packet and then all you have to do is add milk and a Bob's your uncle, okay? Mm. So that's how it came about now. um more recently, um particularly if you're dealing with young and active people, um the message being sent out to nutritionists was um that, you need to fuel up every two hours. And what better way of doing that than to buy yourself some muesli bars, especially the high-protein ones, okay? Yeah. But again, it's a sugar hit. So um, we've been basically um, brainwashing people to believe that every two hours they've got to have a snack. Now...
5: Yep. Breakfast, morning as tea, lunch, it, afternoon tea, dinner, yeah. supper... Yeah.
6: Yeah, exactly, and um, and if you look at the pioneering New Zealanders, you know your Colin Meads and your Lahors and all of them. They uh, and I even think of my like my grandparents and the men and the women in my um, uh, and and my family. They were all big, strong, rock uh men and women. They were strong and okay? fueled by protein. Well, yes, and they didn't snack in between and they didn't even start with breakfast yeah. Um, you know, we've been fed a load of cobblers. Um, and the end result is that um, it's almost as if the whole of New Zealand is pre-diabetic and obese. okay And See, I, um,
5: look- but you look at all of those things that you're talking mm-hmm. about for breakfast and lunch and you know, they yeah. all involve breads, wheat. Yeah. All of these sorts of things, right? Uh, you know, I've noticed cutting wheat out of my diet as much as yeah. possible. I mean, even having uh, oat-type breads. Uh, mm. and, you know, and and I look back on my youth. Mum used to make us, and especially in winter, used to make us porridge, of course, which is rolled oats. Now, mm. I've found that if I have wheat in my diet, I end up with a crook gut. Uh, I put on weight quite quickly. But if I reduce that wheat down to a manageable amount and limit when I have that, and that is usually at breakfast in the form of you know a couple mm. of slices of toast, but I'm using oat based breads now rather than wheat, that my weight just falls off because I don't add any more of the wheat and the things that go with that, like sandwiches and all of those. And we send kids off to school with with bread, you know and and sugary stuff that's based around all of that. And they're leading a sedentary lifestyle and we wonder why they're putting weight on and they're obese because we're actually filling them up with the wrong sort of stuff at the wrong time
6: so there are there are a couple of things there cam um one of the most uh effective health measures that somebody can do diet wise is simply to reduce or eliminate grains yeah um and in particular wheat and rice, yeah. Um, oats might be a little bit better, okay. And there are other grains as well. But to move away from uh, the most industrially produced uh, grains would be a good move because, by default, all grains uh, carbohydrates are ultimately sugar. Yeah. And so, um, by default, if somebody just simply cuts out those primary sources of grains. Uh, they are reducing their sugar intake. The other thing is, is that sugar is pro inflammatory. Sugar yes. feeds bugs like yeast, um, viruses, bacteria, um, and so on, parasites. So if you um, eliminate um, uh, carbohydrates, um, primarily grains, by default, uh, you are going to become healthier. And End up with more
5: that. energy too. I've found that I've had more well, energy by cutting yeah, those course. grains out. And you know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not—I don't go to extremes. Like I prefer to eat wild-type rices, you know, ancient-type yeah. rice rices, rather than you know your jasmine. Well, there's another
6: there's another factor as well. Industrially produced grains tend to be sprayed with glyphosate. Right. Okay, and glyphosate is a herbicide. It is a terrible poison. I've written a few articles on the subject. And, uh, and it's, if, you, if somebody cuts out their commercially produced uh, non-organic grains, by default, they will be reducing their exposure to glyphosate. Glyphosate is used as a crop ripener. Just go into Google and type glyphosate and crop ripener and be prepared to be shocked at what you see. And when glyphosate combines with gluten, it effectively renders the gluten into a toxin. Now that might explain why somebody with a gluten intolerance can go to the south of France or Spain and eat the pastries yeah. and not have a problem. Um, that That is one of the theories in that it's not necessarily the gluten that is the main issue. It is the gluten when it's combined with glyphosates.
5: Well, this is... Yeah, you know, we've mm. gone. We've gone from talking about politics to talking about <laughs> diet and those things, right? <laughs> We're digressing. No, but there's a re, there's a reason for that, right? So, yeah. and and let's just touch back on the nicotine and the diet, right? Yeah. So, I'm not vaccinated for COVID nineteen, right? Mm. I've never worn a mask. I've never practiced any of the rules and regulations, and I was never locked down. I did whatever I wanted, right? And I'm admitting that openly on radio that I did whatever I wanted, but I've also never caught COVID. And, you know, I was smoking cigars once a day during the lockdowns, and in fact it was delightful because I had the time. It takes a long time to smoke a cigar. It takes over an hour for even a small one to smoke. And I'm picking that that nicotine is is what was stopping me catching COVID when everybody else was having it. And then with the diet that I was having, which also included supplements, including zinc, uh, vitamin B vitamin D3 uh, and vitamin C on top of the nicotine was what stopped that. And then we talk about the diet and now we get to where I'm heading. Mm. Aren't we fighting our own DNA by following these prescriptive solutions, you know, to fight obesity for one, for just for one that we're fighting our own DNA and the own our own ability of our body to fight things off naturally. Mm-hmm. And you've written an article about this in particular, yes. and that's what, what interested me to get you on, on this show, that melding of politics and understanding our DNA and where that's going from. And you've written an article and you've called it Safeguarding Life's Sacred Code, Protecting DNA and Our Precious Planet, which is on your website, garymoller.com. And I found that really fascinating where you talk about DNA as being a sacred God script. And now we're talking about why we need to be looking at uh, this genetic engineering, genetically modified organisms, the Mm. therapeutics bill, the all of these things are combining to ankle tap us and take us away from what you call as the God script, the sacred God script yes. of the DNA.
6: Yes, and this is one of the reasons why opposing the Therapeutic Products Bill, which is now legislation, is now, now yep. I believe that the reason why they had to get this legislation through is because it is the mechanism for the fast track approval of novel new medicines, including mRNA or gene uh, related therapies. Yeah. And that's that's why they they were going to put it through whether the public wanted it or not. It had to go through. There is uh, now an infrastructure in place for the production of millions of doses of mRNA drugs in New Zealand. And there are research projects galore around the country in our universities and so on, all geared up to produce mRNA drugs for every imaginable plant, animal, and human use in New Zealand.
5: And that's the thing, isn't it? They're going to apply this first to animals and to plants, which means that we will then be ingesting these modified yes. organisms,
6: whether we yeah. like it or not. The the person to talk to on this is Dr. Guy Hatchard, who um, we all know well. Basically, we share our DNA with every other living organism yeah. uh, that we know. Uh, we talk to our environment, and we principally uh, talk to our environment through our food, and uh, we need to be extremely careful because we share our DNA, and plants share their DNA with us. Plants and animals, any anything, even possibly through inhalation. Okay, um, we can't separate ourselves from uh, basically whatever that life forces out there okay i'm not religious but there is some kind of life force and uh yes um, dna seems to be the closest to us understanding what it is but there's something far greater Uh, all life is one and we must be very careful and if you look at all the great religions Uh, One of the uh, common messages, overriding messages, is that man should never be so arrogant as to think he can play God or be God. It always ends in disaster. And here is the ultimate of man attempting to play God. And we don't understand what we are doing, but we know that whenever man has attempted to play God, they have failed terribly. And so my, my my message is don't go down there. And especially, we haven't had the opportunity for a free and open discussion of the science and the ethics of it. Where's the conferences? Where's the debates? Okay, it's just being foisted down our throats. Well,
5: we saw this during the COVID pandemic where- no debate was even entered into if you tried to debate uh yeah. the merits of uh compulsory vaccination and mrna vaccines and everything you were labeled a conspiracy theorist a cooker a nutter you know we would you were demonized if you said well hang on a second here and, you know, yep. I can remember when they were talking about these mRNA vaccines, a very good friend of mine, one of Cam's buddies who's on, you know regularly on, on the radio, would say to me, he said to me, Cam, we don't want to be doing this. He said, I studied mRNA uh, when I was at university. Uh, this is a mm-hmm. fundamental change to our core code. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, I'm struggling to understand this, as he explained it further. Cool. I said, I need an analogy that, that the everyday person can understand. And he says, Well, Cam, you're into computers. This is like somebody designing a, a piece of code that that they claim will run flawlessly on every computer that's ever been built by man. Irrespective of the language that was used to build the, you know, the instruction code of that original computer or the latest computer you've got. These people are telling you that they've written a piece of code that is universal to every single computer and your your body is a, is your own unique computer that's made up of dna and mrna strands and instructions and they're saying here apply this piece of code to your computer and it's going to work flawlessly and i said to them that's nuts it, it can't possibly work my dna is different from yours you're short and fat and i'm t- i'm not so short and slightly thinner Um, That's our genetic makeup. You, you yourself, Gary, you're much thinner than I am. You know, so that's perhaps your DNA. Perhaps you're helping your DNA by your diet, but everyone's different, and yet we were told here's this thing that everyone can take, and it's and worse, they said it was safe and effective.
6: Yeah, completely unsafe and completely ineffective. Uh, We've we've got to realise that it's now uh, Orwellian doublespeak. Well, whatever is uh, the truth is in fact the lie. Well,
5: it's yeah, crazy. I mean that's the thing is it, it really is. It's almost yeah. like they picked up uh, 1984 from George Orwell and didn't take it as a warning, which is what he intended, yeah. right? Uh took it as a manifesto or yep. an instruction right. book and then melded it. Yeah, down. so they use the manual. Yeah, yeah. They use a manual yeah. and then they yeah. said, Well, we need some other things here to make it more palatable. So then they picked up uh, mein Camp and and also the writings of <laughs> of Goebbels, right? And mixed it all together yeah. and gave us this safe and effective. You uh, know, if you if you yeah. get if you take these um vaccines, you won't get sick and you won't die. Those were the exact words that Jacinda Ardern used, and politicians yeah. all around the world, Joe Biden, uh, many many others said, you if you take these vaccines, it'll stop you getting COVID. Well. That's not the case.
6: Well, uh, and in fact, it'll start you getting COVID. Mm. <laughs> it does the opposite as far as I'm concerned. And uh, by the way, um, uh, the the things you took like uh, zinc, especially if it's combined with uh, other nutrients which uh, help to pull the zinc into your cells, yeah, you probably caught COVID, but you probably never knew it. You see, um, if, it, if I did it was really, so mild, it
5: didn't, it yeah. didn't
6: even notice. Well, it's really yes, it's it's not a case of whether you catch a disease or not. Um, look, I, I've been exposed. I, I I would guess to every bug under the sun, including every hoopees infection you can think of. But it comes down to not so much whether you catch things; it comes down to symptoms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, whether you have um, mild symptoms or whether you have life-threatening symptoms, and this is where having um, uh, a robust body through good nutrition, good lifestyle, sleep, you know, stress management, etc. Um, these are the, these are the keys. Okay, it's not about whether or not you catch the disease; it's how your body manages the disease and ultimately develops. degree of immunity, resistance to further infections. And that's what we should be focusing health on. Now, um, by the way, let's just digress a little bit. Again. (laughs) You were talking about, this is wide ranging, Uh, you're talking about the 1950s, okay? Mm. Now, I can remember the 1950s, and there was a health crisis. We really did have a post-war health crisis. Now, Um, our wise and very practical forefathers, my my parents and my grandparents, they came up with the solutions. And by the way, politicians were not career politicians back then. They were people who had been successful in their own right, who then um, felt it their civic duty to give back to society, okay? Um, Now, so what did they do? They embarked on a... Um, basically a public health program, putting in sewerage. I can remember when the sewer line was dug in and we got rid of the outhouse, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, They put in water treatment, uh, reticulated water. Um, They came up with the Sunshine School design, which um, is a fascinating um, concept. It's all a dental nurse. Yeah, there was a dental nurse in just about every primary school. um, the local farmers were contracted to supply a half pint of fresh full cream milk for every primary school child. Mm. Um, Postage stamps were used to fund health camps. Yeah. And uh, we had the plunkett nurse and so on. Now, those if you think of those, those are um, all pr- um, primary health Uh, investments. New Zealand went from a health crisis to being within the the top three or four uh, countries in the world for health measures. We were competing with Finland, Sweden, Mm -hmm. Norway for child health, for being the healthiest place to raise a child. Then from the mid-1970s, we began our love affair with um, patent medicine. Mm. And uh, we were the second country in the world um, around yeah. 1980, somewhere around there, to allow direct-to um, customer television advertising of pharmaceuticals. The United States was the first. Yeah, And um, we... Um, have uh, deteriorated now to the point where we're competing to be in the bottom three in the developed world for health. Mm. Okay, we've gone the complete opposites. It's a disaster. And um, and what this um, uh, uh, current setup is, is that they are now not just asking us, but they're forcing us to do more of the same more of what has failed us to spend more money on uh, basically patent medicines when they have failed us terribly. We need to go back to the basics of investment. By the way, I forgot to mention as well the state housing program. Hey, Mm. the government back there, they built suburbs and suburbs of the most beautiful modern homes, Mm. okay, and we've had a government that seemed to struggle to build one. Yeah, I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea.:
5: No, I mean you know, eh? I've, I've used the <laughs> analogy that if you sat them in a room full of Lego, they couldn't build a house. you know so I mean, well, you're exactly right. We've had these politicians, and I'll call them academic politicians, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're book learned you know politicians who think that if you just apply more money, or if we um, order uh, people to do things, that it will just happen. You know, a case in point is KiwiBuild, where Phil Twyford mm. said, Oh, we'll get this happening. But there's no way that the government had the capacity to build a house, even a single house, uh, that they were going to have to rely on the private sector. But there was no connection mm-hmm. between slogans, election slogans, and the reality. And and that's what I fear about MMP and where we're heading. And, and I detect that's what you fear as well, which is why we've kind of started this discussion, you and I, mm. is you know, you, you wanted to see New Zealand first come in because you felt they had good solutions, but we're sitting there with national party being dominant, aided by the ACT party, which is, you know, they're not too dissimilar in their global outlook on things seemingly mm. beholden to solutions that aren't solutions, and you've got this bulwark of New Zealand First there, hopefully, who can say, no, we, we need to pull out of this. We need to stop this. I mean, there's some drop-dead dates with the therapeutic spills, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. If we don't pull out by the 1st of December, then we're, we're kind of screwed.
6: Yes, uh, you're right. We're, we are. And our, our big hope, what we did hope for, um, Cameron, was... Getting sufficient New Zealand First MPs
5: yeah.
6: and other independents with similar views into Parliament so that we held the balance of power. And one of the negotiable, well, there were a number of things we want to negotiate. And um, one of them, of course, is the repeal of the Therapeutic Products Act. Yeah, it needed to go. If that, if that was the only thing to go, that would have been a, a wonderful victory. There also need to be other things, of course, like a proper, free and open review um, investigation into the COVID response, yeah. uh, including the, this whole issue of vaccine injuries. Yeah. Um, we needed to, and we still need to have this debate about the um, science and the ethics of um, gene therapies. Yeah, that's That, that is crucial. But unfortunately, because um, of uh, big egos,
5: hubris, arrogance, and egos, and ego.
6: yeah, we we uh, we're down uh, several MPs on where we should be. Yeah, um, because um, what should have happened is that the parties that were obviously the one percenters, mm-hmm. this needed to a decision need to be made needed to be made about two weeks before polling booths opened. That um, the 1% is needed to honorably step aside. Look, um, Cameron, I relate this to like running a marathon. Um, yeah. I've run many marathons. My sister went to four Olympics uh, running marathons. And um, even though it's an individual competition where there's only one winner, and it can be one winner out of a thousand, you know, most of us yeah. are, are condemned to being losers in life but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enthusiastically participate. But here's the thing, okay? It's actually a cooperative effort where, um, so when when the marathon starts, and you you just watch any big marathon, they run together, they help, they pull each other along, they assist, they might even share a drink amongst each other. But when you come then to the last, there comes a point where there's a crunch point, where well, yep. you say, okay, there's now going to be one winner, yeah, and 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 people then make their moves, okay, and there's a winner, and at the end you congratulate and you shake hands for a race well run a, a race well fought. Now, the problem with uh, that happened here is that um, come hell or high water those one percenters were not going to concede that they had lost the race. Yeah. Okay. They weren't. And they in ignored fact,
5: polls. They ignored they, polls. They ignored well, everything.
6: They went a step further and they started to try and trip. Okay. You just imagine running in a running race where you're getting towards the end and it's becoming obvious who's winning. So what do you do? You say, tap them. go for it, Freddie. Go for it, Cam. Okay? Yep. You've got it here, mate. You know, go. Or you trip them up. Okay? Give you a foot trip. Right? Yep. And that's what they resorted to. It was obvious two weeks out that Winston was our only hope. New Zealand first. Winston. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah, sure. The media went nuclear on Winston. David
5: Seymour Righto? went nuclear on Winston.
6: Yes, they did. And but what was unforgivable, that was understandable because hey, um Winston was going to be a threat to their fifty-five million dollar slush fund anyway.
5: Yeah.
6: Um, but the other but what was unforgivable was the other members of the so-called freedom movement, they started to play dirty, okay, with mm. um innuendos, with allegations which um in my view, bordered on being uh, defamatory. Yeah, and with the result is that they they were like um, a bunch of captains of um, ships in a convoy, and one by one they're being torpedoed and they're going under. And they were saying, "Don't saying to the crew, you know, and the passengers, don't worry, uh, we're not going under. You know, there's going to be a miracle. By the way, we're going to get two million votes." Don't know where they're going to come from, but we're going to get 2 million. You know, we had all this. And so the end result is they not only took themselves under, but they put everybody, well, not everybody, but they put so many other people off. There's already enough damage being done by the mainstream media without them adding to it. Yeah. So, you know, it's a tragedy, really, when
5: you think about it.
6: It is. We had to get the maximum number of votes. We needed to get MPs in Parliament. That was the goal. It was not about stroking egos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hundred percent agree with you. And that, that was what I
5: was trying to educate people with yeah. my show. That yes, you know, yeah, Talking yeah. to and, all and you of these did different. A different
6: people. Damn good job, Cam. You did a oh, yeah. good job.
5: But... We just got to try, you know, and and yep. you know, I've been involved in politics all of my life, and and I go by my gut feeling, you know, I Mm. also based on empirical evidence is you can't deny evidence. And that's what I said to Matt Matt King, you know, let's do a poll. You know, if the poll shows you're going to come fourth, well, then will Mm. you just give up? And he said, no, I'm not coming forth. i I'm going to win. Well, guess where he came? Fourth, (laughs) right, which is what the poll, there were three polls done in Northland and every single one of them said Matt King's coming fourth. And that's exactly where he came, but yet he carried on. And Democracy New Zealand carried on on the basis that Matt King was going to win Northland. Ultimately, you know, with hindsight, which is always 2020, it was dishonest. The same as the claim we're going to get there by winning, you know, uh, just in Southland, there's enough votes there to get uh, to to 5% of everyone in Southland votes for us. It was dishonest. It was demonstrably false. And now we see, you know, over the past weekend, Liz Gunn saying, I was just joking about the 2 million votes. No, she wasn't. I saw the video. She was deadly serious. I don't know whether it was a delusion or if it was a deliberate falsehood, but but it led people to believe in something that didn't exist. Hmm. And and if that 1% from NZ Loyal had gone New Zealand first and that 1%, from democracy New Zealand had gone to New Zealand first there would now be three additional MPs in the house in the form of uh, Kirsten Murphy and Lee Donahue yep. you know and 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 a couple of others that were clearly freedom candidates who now are relying yes. on special votes and may or may not get there and that's a tragedy an absolute tragedy that could have been avoided
6: yeah, what, uh, what, one of the things that, uh, one of the rather despicable tactics that was used, uh, Cam, was this um, myopic focus on Winston. Mm. What was uh, constantly ignored was the fact that um, behind Winston was a dedicated team of extremely competent people and a, um, and an impressive Set of um, manifesto or um, election promises. Mm-hmm. Okay, many of those people you mentioned a few names are people who were our friends. Okay, friends of Liz Gunn, of Matt King, and so on. And um, they let them down. They betrayed them. Mm. They, they that was that was the thing. They they said. No way, are we going to go with Winston? Winston can't be trusted, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the and the National and Party totally ignoring the team, the team that was backing Winston. Yeah. Okay. And oh, that look, was, I've that seen was it wrong. for
5: years. You know, the National Party spent 30 years trying to destroy Winston Peters. Yes. Right? And, that, and those are the exact lines that you used. That's what the National Party has been saying and National Party mm. adherents have been saying about Winston Peters for 30 years or more. And the these freedom uh, parties took up that cudgel and used them. I mean, it, it, I was even su- uh, subject to a rather defamatory mm. and outrageous attack uh, by a supposed media organisation that described what that what I was doing to educate voters was a psyop and that I was a creature of the National Party. Just outrageous. Uh, allegations um, but they caused damage that caused damage to as you say the those those really fine well, people that that could have been yeah. in Parliament sitting there working out how um, we could uh, do that
6: I feel really um sad for the people who um were let down by their leaders those leaders and some of them uh I I I've always regarded as friends um but yep. they may not uh, I'm still their friend, but they may not think of me as their friend anymore. But that's that—that's the way it is. But um, they need to now be eating humble pie. They need to be coming to us, and they need to be apologising. That's
5: the—that's the sad thing, yeah.
6: Gary. Well, you know, as they, they, they
5: won't. They won't do that um, yeah. because uh, of I know. because of the narcissism, because of the hubris, because of the arrogance. And it's, it's it, yeah. you know, I describe it as a tragedy, and it is. Um, it was a missed opportunity, and, well and, you know, we've
6: just got yeah. to work harder. Now. Cam, uh, the well, one of the things that I've learned, one of the hardest words, uh, first of all, is to say no.
5: Yeah.
6: But what's even harder is to say, say sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got it wrong. Now, what can I do to make the best? of uh, what might be a bad thing, okay? That's really hard to do. But uh, I think um, with practice, it actually becomes easier And because I practice that a lot nowadays. So where do we go from here? What I think, uh, this is what I want people to do. We need to now think three years ahead. We need to think about the next election. Now, oh, can I make one point? Yeah. Because of this lost opportunity by overinflated, uh, bullheaded egos, people are dying, people are being maimed. Okay, yep. We have to now face another three to four years before anything changes, and in fact, things may get worse. Mm. People are dying, and that's one of the things that, um, That was completely overlooked when these people said, no way, I'm going to push on, even though I've only got 1%. You know, we're going to get the 200,000 votes, the 2 million, sorry, 2 million votes and so on. They are costing people's lives. People are being maimed because it allows these lies to continue. We must not forget that. Okay. I'm with you
5: 100% on that.
6: Yeah. Now, it means... Um, nothing's going to change for another three years and probably another year after that. At least. Okay? At least. So, um, And this is just
5: the point we, I was making to these yeah. smaller parties, right? The ACT Party has mm. been in existence for 35 years. New Zealand yeah. First has been in existence for 30 years. That's how long it takes yeah. you to get to a credible force in Parliament. You can't expect overnight that you'll get 5%, 6%, 10% overnight. It is an intergenerational journey. And not one single one of those leaders is prepared to embark on that intergenerational journey because it requires discipline, it requires Mm -hmm. patience, and it requires dedication. And none of them have that,
6: Yes, it takes – you're right – That was one of the um, reasons for uh, associating with an existing political party, even if we didn't completely like what was there.
5: That's right.
6: There's no point in trying to recreate an incredibly complex machine. Um, It's not just a wheel, a political party. It's not easy. It's complicated.
5: It's very complicated.
6: Yeah. Yes, it takes time to build the infrastructure um, and to weed out the... Crackpots as well, by the way. Mm. Okay, yeah. yeah. So the the idea which we need to continue is to say, okay, New Zealand first has welcomed us with open arms. Yeah, there's yeah. been no um, there's there's been no subterfuge or whatever you. But okay, you know,
5: a point you raised before about the ability yeah. to say sorry. That was the first interview, one of my first <laughs> shows, right? I had with Winston Peters. Yeah. And I said, you know, you were part of the government that brought in these mandates. And he acknowledged that he was wrong. Mm. He said that it was, uh, you know, that it, knowing what he knows now, he wished he hadn't done that.
1: Mm.
5: And then I, in a second interview that I had with him, I said, you know, do you remember Alan Martin used to have the LV Martin ads? And he would always yes. say, it's the putting right <laughs> that counts. And Winston said, yeah, yep. and that's, that's why... I'm back. That's why I've come back into the parliament so that I can right the wrongs. Yeah. And I believe him. I've seen the resolve in him uh, that he knows that he was wrong. He said it out loud, which not very many politicians do. Hmm. And now it's up to him to grow New Zealand first. And it's up to us and people like the audience here on Reality Cheat Radio need to get behind that, become yes. involved in those. Don't sit back and expect someone else to do it, right? Go and join those political parties. Go and join the National Party and change them one branch at a time, one electorate at a time. Go and join the ACT Party and change yep. them one branch, one electorate at a time. And go and join New Zealand first and power them up so that they aren't a party that disappears after 30 years, that they go on and they're there for another 30 years and they are looking for the benefits for New Zealand, not for other countries.
6: Yes, uh, so uh, this, this is uh, really good stuff. We become the party, and the party becomes us. Correct. And if, uh, if you don't become part of the party, if you don't get involved, and it ends up not representing your views, then don't complain. Yeah, that's if, uh, that's if the. If your involvement overriding in message. the
5: electoral process is that you go and vote yeah. once every three years, well then well, you're not trying hard enough.
6: Yeah, I I actually think that um, uh, not being involved. Well, the real power in politics actually happens at the party level. We need to We need to be involved there. Uh, the, the casting of the votes is like going to a Turkish restaurant and expecting French to be served.
5: Yeah, okay. And in complaining if that you, there's no
6: baguettes on the table.
5: Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Where's if the you croissants? Want, you're at a Turkish yeah, restaurant, you, but I want croissants.
6: Yeah, if you want a party to provide you with the kinds of policies and to deliver on them, you've got to get involved at the party level. Otherwise, when it comes to casting a vote, well, you're just going to have to accept whatever they serve.
5: Well, there's okay. an old there's an old yeah. military saying, right, that comes from, uh, you know, at the end of sieges, uh, when the walls are finally breached, what the uh, generals would do is they would send in a forlorn hope, right, where, where it was led by a junior officer and a sergeant and and a bunch of reprobates. And if they survived the battle, then they were promoted, And then, but they were called the forlorn hope because there was a, a very high chance that going through that breach, they were never going to come back. And mm. that's what these minor parties are often: are the forlorn hope who get mowed down as they go into the breach. Uh, and you know, I think what we've discussed today—you know, mm. we've we've been wide ranging. We've gone from politics to health, uh, back to politics, and then into solutions for the future. Um, it requires these courageous discussions. Where we're unafraid to actually say what went wrong and try and rectify that. And, you know, people like yourself who have put themselves out there, had a website, you know, put your opinions out there. Uh, those are the people that we should be listening to. People like yourself, people like us here at Reality Check Radio, because we've got our head above the parapet. And, you know, but we need other people to join in that fight. And so yeah, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today about this, and uh, you know I'm pretty sure this is going to be one of the most replayed uh, interviews that I've had in a long time too, because just because it's so wide ranging.
6: Forlorn defeat or glorious and victory?
5: Well, I prefer to look on things to be glorious and victory. No one likes coming second, right? You're, you've you you used your sporting analogies and marathons. Does anyone ever remember who came second in the New York Marathon in 1988? Nobody does, yeah. right? Or yeah. or who won the silver medal in any of the Olympics for marathons? Nobody remembers them, right? So for glorious those know,
6: victory. <laughs> for those in the know, we know that for there to be a victor, there must be others. Many, many, many losers. There's, yep, there's many, many losers, and there's – um and and there's there's um there there's nothing to be ashamed of or to be depressed about by not winning
5: but um, you've got to get a go is
6: absolutely the icing on the cake yep and, and it is it's an extremely rare um experience for the vast majority of us but um uh, you know uh, look um, uh, I've spent my entire life getting beaten <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've I've been winning lately. I've been winning lately, but it's mainly because I've I waited for all my opposition to die off.
5: <laughs> well, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? You you wear them down. It's like you know people keep yeah you know, said to me, you know you're irrelevant or that. And yet the people who are saying that are the ones who are listening.
6: Okay, so... I'm, I'm I'm doing a Winston, or maybe Winston's doing a Gary. right? Okay? Yeah. he's following me. Yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Well, on that note, Gary, thank you so much for coming on The Crunch. I really appreciate your time.
6: That's a pleasure.
5: I really seem to get distracted sometimes, and I did it again with Gary, because we ranged far and wide in the interview, and it's something that I do these days. But I find it energizing and invigorating to discuss lots of different topics. He's a fascinating and thoroughly likable bloke, And it was a real pleasure to discuss health, nutrition, politics, and the lost opportunities with him today. Don't forget to send comments on Gary's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057.
2: You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams.
1: Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It
2: turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
0: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
2: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio, at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here On RCR, reality check radio.
5: Now it's time for Cam's Buddies. This week we'll find out what they think of Wayne Brown a year after his election as Mayor of Auckland. He's proposing fewer local boards, but giving them more power and more funding. Let's see what the Buddies think about all that. My producers got them all lined up and ready to go. So let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about Mayor Wayne Brown. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Paul. How are you? Very good, thank you, Cam,
8: and good afternoon.
5: Yeah, um, I thought the topic um, for discussion today would be Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown. He's been in the job for just over a year. He's put a proposal forward to the council's joint governance working party that would see fewer local boards, but given more power to make larger-scale decisions and also give them increased uh, funding. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that but uh, or aware of it, but what do you think about his past year and these proposals?
8: Um, the proposal to have a bit more autonomy in our local area, I think I'm, I, I would like that. If we could talk to the local person and say to them, put in a cycle way at your peril... Or make our roads narrower at your peril,
5: yeah.
8: And then there was fewer of them, and you could vote them out and get someone in the, in a smaller effort to do that. I'd be pleased with that. Also, if um, if there's less people in the council, um, it, the, in my view, there's too many people making too many decisions, and they're not a united front. So um, when when you look at Auckland Council, it's not like a business. It's like um, he has to be a lobbyer to get the people on side so that they can um, pass any form of governance because he's only one voice. And um, that would be a very difficult thing to work at, I believe. I was listening to Morrison um, talking at some stage when he was saying that um, even though they're paying a lot of money in interest to hold the shares that they've got in the Auckland airport, for example... Um, it doesn't return to a dividend as much as the interest cost, so that 30,000 houses get to pay their rates solely for the ability for the rest of us to hold these shares. Now, that might be a bit oversimplifying it because my understanding is when they bought the shares, they weren't that much. But the fact that they could sell them now and they've borrowed money for other things, that's, you know, there's a bit of a... You've got, you've got to be careful what people are saying because if if you bought those shares for a dollar and they're paying you $10 worth of dividends, but they're worth a million dollars. They're a good investment on what you bought them for, but they're not necessarily a good investment on what you could sell them for. Yeah. So when I looked at what he was saying also about having um, Maori indigenous seats or um, indigenous people having seats set up separately in the council so that we could consult them, I thought they need to be listening to what happened in Australia with The Voice. Um, the people are not keen on such things, even though the United Nations declaration on the rights of the indigenous people, we believe that we've adopted it. It's a load of shit when you read it. Um, what they're saying is give them two voices and give them two votes. And when you have councillors saying, oh, well, I was elected by my constituents, not by the Maori, so I can't act for them. But. Asians are twice or three times the number of Maori. Pacifica are a greater number than Maori. And Europeans are a way greater number than Maori. Um, I just think get elected. If Maori want to do things, get elected and they can do them. Now, who? what are councillors if they're not? See, ratepayers put in a pool of money and councillors decide how we're going to spend it for the best interest of the city. Mm. If you're not a ratepayer, should you have a vote? As in in the Auckland Council, because if you're not a ratepayer, you're you're deciding how the people who put the money up should spend it, even though you don't put any money up yourself. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's poor governance. Now, when I look at what what is the percentage of ownership of houses of um, Maori, I think it's something like 38 to 40 percent of Maori in New Zealand in Auckland sorry, own their own home. Well, it might be 28 in Auckland, but 48 over or 40 over the whole country. Yeah. Yeah. And so um people that pay le- people that don't pay rates shouldn't have all the say. That that's not how things work. People who put the money up, they get to have the say. So if if I'm paying rates and I'm paying 5000 a year, then I get a vote. And then if then, I'm paying um, you'd nothing, you'd be
5: wishing you could pay 5000 a year, wouldn't
8: you? <laughs> that would be my dream. But I know a lot of people do pay 5000 a year. Um my rates are just a little more than that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, there's an um, the argument think...
5: that renters do pay rates, and in, but indirectly via the landlord. Um, but yeah, you know, I I really struggle with this concept. If you don't own property and you don't pay rates directly, um, you know, it used to be that you if wherever you own property, you had a vote. Uh, now the way it is is you you might have a property in in the Coromandel, for example, but you don't get to have a vote. Um, in the Coromandel District, because you don't live there, and uh, but actually mm. you, you, you're paying rates there and contributing to the to the you know local council economy by having that property there, but they don't give you a say. And uh, yeah, I, I really struggle with uh, with, with this uh, general competence and allowing any man and his dog to have a vote when they're not paying directly from their own pocket.
8: I agree with you. Because when we decide how we're going to spend other people's money, who are the other people? And normally the other people are middle-aged white male. And they're the only that's the only group of people you can mock. That's the only group of people that have, are allowed to be the butt of every joke with no um, recrimination. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no consequences. But they're the ones that pay all the money to make the world go round. But they're the ones that are considered and treated the most poorly. But let's have... Um, Maori councillors that can can veto and do all sorts of things that aren't necessarily needing to be elected. They just get gifted such things. Now, if they have to be elected by Maori, why don't Maori just put up candidates and elect them in the normal manner? What, what's the number of, um, I think, in the 17 election, in the general election, I think 25% of the candidates were Maori. mm and, no, in the, in the most and they got line, there on their exactly own, right. with the yeah. exception of with two or three. And so and now we've just had New Zealand first going into Parliament, but the top three positions are all held by Maori. Mm. I mean, I look and I think, so there will be more Maori in Parliament. They're sharp, they know what they're doing, they get elected if they wish to be, and, and all is well. We don't need to be pandering and saying to the world, you know, oh, we better help them up here because they're too stupid to do it for themselves. They outperform us in all sorts of areas. And, and by us, I mean the average New Zealand is outperformed by a Maori politician every which way. They get more money, they get more seats, they get more coverage. And I'm thinking, and then we want to help them and give them um, in local government the same sort of thing when there's as many Maori in the local government as want to put their name forward and do the work and get elected.
5: Yes, good points that you raise there. One thing that really rips my undies uh, driving around Auckland is um, this proliferation of these speed bumps where there are pedestrian crossings. Did anyone vote for that? And then it usually goes hand in hand with the stealing of half of a lane for a cycleway, and I've never seen a cyclist on the cycleways, and these massive bumps that they're putting in all around the place are just causing snarl ups in traffic, and not a single person was asked if they wanted it. But somehow they're spending tens of thousands
8: of dollars on each one of them. Yes, but then they paint them with white arrows on them that fades, so then you're driving along or on a wet road, and it just looks like black bitumen because now the paint has faded. And you smash the front out of your car unless you know where you, you know your way around there. They aren't labelled as such. There's not a, a stick sticking up off the side of the road saying there's a speed bump here. And once the paint fades a little, you, they do damage to a lot of a lot of cars. That's what I imagine. All the Remuera mums have to drive four wheel drives now because they don't need to worry about spotting them. But I think the best thing we could do about those is every time you go over one, toot your horn for four seconds. Yes. Then the people will be so pissed off around them that. Mm-hmm they will ask to have them removed by the council because it will just drive them mad. And I think that would be a reasonable plan or every time you go over one, go around to some council-type manager's place and toot your horn for five minutes so that if you did six of the day, you have to go around there for half an hour because it's just... They are just the biggest menace of things around. And and set a speed camera. Set a speed that is needing to be um, policed and most most reasonable people drive at the speed limit.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Uh, you know, outside my place here in Takapuna, we had t- three nights uh, of interrupted sleep because the council decided to turn part of the road into 30 kilometres an hour. Again, no one was consulted on this. We've had these new signs put up, these red stripes put on on the road, and everyone dutifully ignores them because it's impossible to drive on that road at thirty kilometres. Uh, you know, in Ooh. fact, you're struggling to do it at fifty because of because of all the traffic that's doing it. But I mean, no one asks us as ratepayers, "Do you want this?" It's just done, and it's presented as a fait accompli at vast expense, uh, extortionate. Type of I understand that it costs the council somewhere in the vicinity of $100,000 per one of those bumps that they put in for the pedestrian crossings. I mean, it's ludicrous amounts of I money.
8: I can believe that. I can believe that because what you have to do to get such a thing is you have to design it engineeringly. You've got to get the water to flow around it. There's quite a lot of other things that go with it so that then you can have built something that's annoying and no one appreciates. Now, I get the idea that we might need something to tell us there's a pedestrian crossing but normally it's um either a light or 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 people with visible clothing that are about to cross and you know oh yeah there's a look I don't see people racing over pedestrian crossings and I don't hear much of pedestrians being mown down by drivers that can't see them and yet they have to have these stupidity bumps to make sure that we can go at a silly. Slow speed.
5: So to summarise, you're okay with having less uh, community uh, boards with increased powers if um, they start actually listening to not just the voters but the, the the rate payers, the people who actually shovel the money in that they uh, seem to gleefully and wantonly spend.
8: Yes, and I'm um, opposed to specific Maori council seats. Although I think um, Wayne Brown was on Maori um, TV, he was on the board of Maori TV at some stage, wasn't he? He might have a a leaning towards helping such such folk. But I think the way you help such folk is you say get the votes, do the work, life will you'll be elected. They end. Yeah,
5: that's it. That's what democracy is all about. And uh, you, you know you're right. You look at New Zealand first. Winston Peters, Shane Jones, Casey Costello—three uh, superb Maori politicians elected there in their own right, not because they're Maori.
8: But when I talk to any of them, and I've talked to a couple of them, I don't think Maori politicians. I think New Zealander.
5: Yeah, exactly. And That's the problem. And with when the, I think with... New Zealander,
8: we're all good to go. And 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 if you look at me, my skin is very brown, yeah. um, I'm often um, asked what tribe am my... I. And and I don't let on where I'm from. I don't let on my heritage because it's no one's business. But I, I'm looking, I'm thinking um, when I when people see me, I hope they see New Zealander. And when I see um, these other folk, I think New Zealander. The end. Mm.
5: Well, if we could all think that way, I think except our life you,
8: would I think Fijian.
5: Yeah, except me, I'm Fijian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, Paul, the Akalevu, thank you for your comments, and uh, we'll talk next week. Ola. Thank you, mate. Bye for now. Bye. Good afternoon, Jack. Welcome to The Crunch and Cam's Buddies. day, Cam.
3: I understand you had a, a blown eardrum. How
5: the hell did yeah. that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I just woke up uh, with a whole lot of blood all over my pillow, went up to emergency uh, department at North Shore Hospital and uh, found out I had a um, burst eardrum. They think it was. Probably a um, a bit of an infection in the ear, although I don't s- sort of feel sick or anything. Uh, and I've got two weeks yeah. of uh, two weeks of recovery to to get there back. So you know, I'm a little bit. Uh, people accuse me of being one-eyed, and at the moment, I'm one eared
3: Well, yeah, um, yeah. Having had that done myself, I have bad news for you. You your age, um, it, it's not fixable. If you were six or seven, they could put a grommet on, and it would uh, repair itself.
5: Oh, no, so, I'm told anyway. it'll
3: repair itself,
5: so we'll see what happens. Yeah, but it's North Shore Hospital. What the hell do they know? Yeah, well, I'm told the the ambulance drivers call it North Shore Hospital. Yeah. So, anyway, anyway. topic for this week. <laughs> we've had uh, just a bit over a year of Wayne Brown as the mayor. He's uh, made a couple of uh, suggestions in the past week on uh, wanting to reduce uh, local boards from 22 boards to 13 Uh, And uh, although there'll be reduced representation, they'll have uh, better powers to make decisions and increased funding for those boards. So I'm I'm looking for your feedback on that idea and just in general, uh, how you think he's gone after a year in the job?
3: Well, over 50 years ago, I was an engineering assistant in what was then the Wairamata County Council, now the Auckland City Council. And I had a mentor, and my mentor had worked for Becca Carter, very good engineer, and he started talking about this bloke, Wayne Brown. I mean, we're talking back here in the late 60s, early 70s. He said, oh, this guy's a genius. Watch this space. This guy's going to go places. So I've been waiting for 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Wayne Brown's six months older than me, and I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing? He must have more energy than me, but he is a visionary and he must be so frustrated. It reminds me of when I was on a parent-teacher association at my uh, son's school and sitting around a the room there, which would be just like he does when he's sitting around with his other uh, people in the Meralty and a hell of a lot of talking and absolutely nothing gets done. It's a real eye-opener. And I think he's a guy that just wants to cut to the chase and remove all the gobbledygook, yuck speak and get on with it. And for that, he's got my support.
5: You know, I was just talking with uh, with Paul about, um, about the council expenditure and how we seem to have, uh, you know, all of a sudden, 30-kilometre zones popping up everywhere that no-one was consulted on these appalling bumps in the road wherever there's a pedestrian crossing that magics itself up uh, in order to test our suspension in the front end of our cars and the back end as we go over them. And nobody seems to consult us about these sorts of things, even though we're paying with our rates uh, these exorbitant sums of money. And at the same time, we've got these massive debt in the council um, at the same time as wanting to hold on to, to a few shares in Auckland Airport. I would have thought that that would be more important to get under control than worrying about the number of boards that we've got.
3: Yeah, and um, just remember, when you make the laws too onerous, nobody obeys them. So maybe he wants to get some extra money through ticketing, I don't know. But, you know, you you can sort of lure the hell out of people, but at the end of the day, they just turn a blind eye to it and carry on as normal. Yeah, well, I I wonder whether that was his idea.
5: I doubt it's his idea. It'll be some you know council traffic engineer who's decided let's make life difficult on this street. I mean, I you know just earlier this a- afternoon before um coming to here, I was over in Hearn Bay and taking a back street to get to the to the uh, road to take me to the harbor Bridge. and I swear to God there was 20 uh of the most enormous, almost mountainous speed bumps on this one street. Uh, just a huge endless line of traffic doing 20 kilometres an hour just to climb over these these bumps. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm starting to think maybe there's a few councillors or city engineers or something like that live on Sarsfield Street or something like that, and they want everyone to drive around at pedestrian sort of um, speeds
3: because it was just... It tells, be- it tells me nothing has changed since yeah. I was in engineering. Nothing has changed. But hey, maybe he's going for a record because I remember when I was in Vanuatu once and uh, I had a car. There's so many bumps here. They said they had the world record for the no- the most number of suspension uh, changes. Maybe we're going for that.
5: Well, I don't know. You the road from uh, from Nandi to Suva has um, bumps, but they're they're depressions actually, and we you know we wouldn't even call them potholes. They're more like chasms. Or canyons, yes. uh, they'll, they'll swallow a small car if you're not careful. Um, you know, and suspension. I know. I've driven that, it's not
3: space. good. The vanuatu <laughs> is worse.
5: Yeah, Vanuatu's anyway, not that bad, but um, there's just not as many roads as there are in Fiji.
3: I think Wayne Brown's got a hell of a road ahead of him. He's trying to do the best he can, but he'll be surrounded by frigging idiots, unfortunately, and that's hard work all yeah. the way. He'll he'll be in battle.
5: Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Idiots and stupid people uh, uh, surround us. There's actually probably about the same number of idiots and stupid people in Auckland Council as there are road cones on our streets.
3: Well, I may be a bit cynical, but I think 95% of all New Zealanders are totally stupid and the other 5% are suspect.
5: <laughs> Uh I'm a little bit different from you. I think it's 95% are, are desperately stupid, about 4% uh, uh marginal, and 1% um, have got their wits about them.
3: Well, you're not far off my, my stats. <laughs>
5: yeah. Maybe we're just old, curmudgeonly, cynical old bastards. And You're, not,
3: you're not even old. I don't know what you're talking about. You're just a young buck.
5: I don't know. I'm 55 next week. That's young. Yeah.
3: Although if you were North African, you'd be twice dead. But we won't talk about that.
5: No, we won't. All right, Jack, thank you very much for your comments. Appreciate those, and we'll talk next week. Nice talking to you. Bye. Bye. Welcome to The Crunch and Cam's Buddies, Jimmy. G'day, Cam. How are you today? Yeah, boxing on, even though I've got a burst eardrum. And, um, you know, people accuse me of being one-eyed and now I'm one-eared. So, you know, it's a bit of fun. Well,
4: I've known you for a fair while, mate, and you're fairly one-eyed and one ear suits you.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit different from, uh, you know, my early days in the the blogging world anyway. Hello, mate.
4: Certainly Mellow. I'll give you
5: yeah, that. I've been slowed down a lot. Well,
4: I've got a tricky question now, for question you this have week. You have to
5: today? Yeah, it's a tricky one, yeah. Jimmy. We've had um we've had Wayne Brown as the Auckland mayor for just a bit over a year. I'm interested to know what you think about how he's gone and what you think of his new proposals uh to uh reduce the number of local boards from twenty-two to thirteen. Giving them more power and more decision-making abilities, as well as additional funding.
4: Well, I've, I have actually read a few bits and pieces on this, and I always like to hear about shrinking bureaucracies. It's always a positive, but also I'm I'm not that sure about centralising more power either. So um, I'm not sure. It is also He's sitting on the fence on Maori wards as well, I
5: understand. Yeah, I'm I'm not really that enamoured with Maori wards. Um, you know, one of the buddies earlier... No, um, certainly
4: not either.
5: Yeah, he, Paul was saying, you know, stand um, for election, get elected like, you know, Winston Peters and Shane Jones and Casey Costello, three Maori that lead New Zealand first. They've managed to get elected not because they're Maori but because they're good at what they do. And, uh, you know, Maori are pretty competent when it comes to public speaking and those sorts of things um you know I I believe if they stood in in ordinary Wards that they'd still be elected uh, and I don't think we no, need of to course spe- they would. I don't think we need to have special Wards uh, on the basis of race because then what do you do do you have a Pacifica one do you have you know uh, one for Chinese or one for Indians uh, you know where does it end
4: well I completely agree and that's why Wards uh, absolutely crazy, um, you know, basing any sort of uh, democracy around race is just nuts. I see in Parliament we have more than, like, 25% of the MPs um, have Maori ancestry. There's an over-representation of Maori. Yeah,
5: I don't think we the should change that, though. I population. mean... I don't think we should change that. The no, no, Maori have been elected on their own merits. There's only four. Yeah, no,
4: that's right. It's, it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. But it just shows you don't necessarily need to specifically have Maori. So why would Maori wards be any different? But as for shrinking the local boards, shrinking bureaucracy is good. Centralising bureaucracy is usually bad. I'm torn, Cam. I'm torn. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look into it more.
5: Well, I'm a big fan of Roman history, and uh, I believe that we should uh, – treat council and government uh, workers uh, the same way that the generals treated their soldiers if they lost um, battles, where they would then uh, decimate the survivors to improve morale?
4: (laughs) So of the 13 boards that survive, you want to decimate them, politically speaking?
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, just not just the boards, but but look at the, you know, when we were sold the the idea that that super city was going to give us, uh, you know, savings. One of the things was we were going to not have as many staff. Well, there's more people working for Auckland City now than the three cities that were combined to make Auckland City, and uh, so you know, and we haven't had an increase, a corresponding increase in services. In fact, they've got worse. So, you know, I'm of the opinion that perhaps we should um, take an axe to staffing levels at least 10%, and that won't even get us back to where it should be. Maybe we should be doing a double decimation and take out 20% of them.
4: Well, that's a good point. So the centralization that one proposes may end up with increased staff numbers due to um, quirks of bureaucracy and actually cost more. Than- well,
5: then that's the problem, isn't it? you know, that that we worry about, because like when politicians do things, they often don't think them uh, through as clearly as what? other people, although Wayne Brown seems to, to have a bit of clarity in thinking. Uh, but, you know, in, in the past and, you know, certainly in the future, we're going to have politicians making crazy decisions without any thought of the consequences, unintended or intended.
4: Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So I think that I, well, I guess to summarise, that I support shrinking of the the boards as long as there's a protocol in place where this, the bureaucracy can't balloon and create even more cost. Yeah, you know, it's just gobbling up more more rates money. So yeah.
5: So you, being but, a small I, government person, you'd be saying, "Yep, that, that's good. Let's uh, reduce the number of boards. That theoretically, it should reduce the costs." Uh, and uh and let's see how it goes.
4: Well that's yeah, that that's what Wayne's point was, is that he considers a lot of the twenty one boards existing do duplicate work, which is a direct cost. Yeah. So you'd ax that. But as you say, we have to be careful that the, the boards don't grow like the super city ended up actually doing. So we have to put protocol in place to stop that or limit the amount of staff. Otherwise it just the same happens again. Good intentions become bad policy, as well, quite often the,
5: happens in this country. The the uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And sometimes those good intentions become potholes.
4: <laughs> yes. Oh mate, you're on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's my two cents, mate.
5: Uh, all good. Thank you very much uh, for that, Jimmy. We'll talk next week. Thanks. Welcome to Cam's Buddies and The Crunch. Miles, good afternoon.
7: Good afternoon. How are you this afternoon?
5: Yeah, box of birds, apart from my wonky ear, but that's all going to heal okay. It's all fine. Hasn't stopped me doing what I do best.
7: Excellent. I'm pleased to hear that. It's great to speak to you again.
5: Bit of a curveball for you today. We're sort of getting off national politics and back to local body politics. Wayne Brown's been the mayor of Auckland now for just over a year. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on how he's gone, uh, where he should be going, and more importantly, his latest proposal, which is to reduce the local boards from 22 to 13, uh, reducing the number but increasing, as he says, um, additional powers for them uh, and also uh, additional funds uh, for those
7: boards. Okay, so I guess that, uh, uh, firstly, I live in Auckland, and this is a topic very close to my heart because I think the Auckland super city was all hellfire and amalgamation and all about saving money through um, cutting duplication of services. And how did that turn out? Well, it was a big bust. Auckland grew, Auckland City, uh, especially the um, administrative side, grew like topsy. And it was just unchecked, unbridled spending. And that's been reflected in rate rises because there's no incentive for Auckland to do any better, especially if they can just charge their ratepayers. And I, I think that all ratepayers across New Zealand would think the same way. However, let's get on to Wayne Brown. He was elected. A year ago, I think on October 28th, his first year, I'm not not quite sure. Um, And I think that he has um, some notable achievements in bringing particularly hospital boards into line, but I was interested to see what he'd do in in Auckland. So this is one of his first, I I guess, major changes. He's made a lot of little changes. I'm in support of it. So here's what I think. I think local boards were too much and there wasn't really any incentive to go to the local boards. After all, why would you when you could go to the councillor? So well, I, I thought to myself, oh, I wonder what, um, what this actually means. Well, if I think there's, say, 21-odd local boards reduced down to 13, and just for those outside of Auckland, it's going to be... 11 on on uh, the mainland, so to speak, and, and two island boards. That's going to reduce the number of board members by about 48 to 50, roughly speaking. Yep. This, I think, is a great thing. I mean, the gravy train of being a local board member must be marvellous. And um, I'm thinking that Wayne Brown has got his head screwed on by starting reforms at the bottom. And I I like the cut of his cloth.
5: Yeah, it's interesting because... What uh, does this
7: actually mean? Well, it means that all those local boards with six or so representatives will be just amalgamated and all those budgets will be amalgamated. Do I think that's going to matter in terms of my voice? Um,
5: Well, they don't listen to us anyway.
7: Yeah, I'm cynical about my voice mattering. And here's why: Auckland Transport, the master of all things transport in Auckland, from buses to speed limits to cycleways, has pursued a course I would say that has been ideological. Putting in cycleways, reducing speed limits to 30k,
5: those horrendous um, bumps. That putting are in, um,
7: yeah, exactly. I'm horrified at um, what Auckland Transport has been getting away with. And my voice doesn't seem to matter. I've contributed on a number of different submissions, as I'm sure a lot of Aucklanders have, and they don't listen. So here's what I think about Wayne Brown. Good on you, Wayne.
5: I reckon he needs to pick up a very sharp axe and swing it with gay abandon inside the council.
7: Yeah, I think he needs to really start pruning and... If he, if he starts pruning with the local boards, so be it. That's 48 less elected representatives. Do I think it will matter to my voice? As I've alluded, I don't think it'll matter one job. Do I think it'll matter to the budget? Why, yes, I do. There will be a hell of a lot of ancillary staff, facilities, and a lot of other expenses associated with all those boards and by reducing that, it can only be a good thing.
5: So broadly, you're in agreement with what Wayne Brown is doing, and uh, yeah, and, I think and hope he goes a bit
7: further. Yes, I think that's true. I think um I think Wayne Brown has discovered the complexities of local government, and uh, running a council as uh, the mayor of Auckland, you have to remember he only has one vote on the council. Yep. Where Wayne Brown's power lies is in the ability to appoint um, chairman and and so forth in committees. So that's where his power lies and his power also lies in what he's doing right now, restructuring. Um, So I think he has gotten his head around how local government works and I think this might be the first step in a number of changes. And I'm hoping that firstly, the um, size of the uh, staff at Auckland city gets bought under control.
5: Well, let's hope he does manage to do that and, uh, and some more because the long suffering ratepayers of Auckland are still copying increases when, you know, decreases were promised and, uh, that's something that uh, no local body politician has ever managed to achieve. It seems this, there's this inexorable rise uh, of of rates to the point where it's almost at rent levels for some properties.
7: Correct. And I'm I'm thinking this tax on us, we see very little for it, and there's very little um, complaints. Apart from the rate payers, now you know from from my perspective, council should be listening to the rate payers and giving them a voice. They are the people that pay the bills, and they are the people that are just treated as a, a ATM. Uh, indeed, the council, if their budget, if they go over budget, they just go along to the rate payer ATM and punch up a
5: couple of hundred million more. Yep, you feel like you're being frisked every five minutes, and your wallet um, pilfered by the council.
7: Correct. And what I want to see is how Wayne Brown's um, reforms, starting with this, will make a difference to the expenditure of the council.
5: Well, let's hope he does uh, does exactly that, and uh, we'll we should be able to uh, talk about that in future. Cam's buddies and in the meantime I might even think about getting the mayor on the show and putting some of these questions directly to him as well.
7: Listen I think Wayne Brown would welcome the chance to talk with um, someone who hasn't gotten axe to grind in a manner that you approach things so I think you know that would be a very good idea. I'd look forward to hearing that.
5: I'll see if I can organise it for you. Anyway, thank you for calling in to Cam's Buddies this week, and we'll talk next week. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. There you have it, the unvarnished views of voters in Auckland about Mayor Wayne Brown. My buddies are awesome. They never, ever let me down in sharing their views. Tell us who you think is the best of Cam's Buddies this week and why that is by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057
2: rcr is on a mission to revive honest media and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the rcr foundation members club receive exclusive benefits only available to club members including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind the scenes discussions along with our all-new daily curated news summary rcr Bytes that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission
0: that's making a difference. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.
5: Now one of my favorite parts of the show, it's the mailbag. Let's see what we've got. Have we got bouquets or brickbats? We'll start off with some general feedback. Simon says, hey, Cam, wow, well, good times. I enjoy your interviews because you have a very profound honesty. Didn't know who you were beforehand except some whale jig Lol. Ron says, hi, Cam, love your opinions on the political debate. They're very unbiased and level-headed. I voted for Liz Gunn and it was a heart vote as I knew Peters would get over the threshold. Peters is a politician and the only vote in reality. You made a great point about the other people on their list That can make a difference. One area that does concern me, and I guess it is a historical thinking, but why do all the seats go to National and Labour, give or take a couple of other smaller parties, ACT, Greens and Maori? Logically, and I use that word with tongue in cheek, wouldn't it serve the community more with an independent? And the only thought that I have is that they, the voters, think that they need a large party to get local policies through. Love to hear your thoughts and really believe you have great political insights. Ron, look, that's something that really bugs me, that essentially for the electorates, it's the red team or the blue team. And I, I'm very pleased to see uh ACT, uh, the Greens and the Maori Party actually picking up some electorates off Labour and national. It doesn't ma- matter so much in the end of the day Uh, in terms of the overall result, but I think it's good to have local representation that's not represented by one or other of the two major parties. Susan writes and says, hi, Cam, I enjoy your political analysis and agree that taxpayers shouldn't be funding media, cultural events and entertainment, but appreciation of classical music in New Zealand is actually growing in popularity because a large number of Chinese and Korean immigrants play classical music. So I think you very much underestimate its relevance. If taxpayers funded only the basics, we could each keep more income and pay for whatever we support. In my case, RCR and classical music. And Susan, you raise a good point there. But I'll bet you, bot- to your bottom dollar, that those Chinese and Korean immigrants aren't listening to classical music on the concert program, I reckon they're probably listening to it on Spotify, which is what I was actually saying. Instead of spending tens of millions of dollars on a radio frequency, just give the very few, and it would be very few people who enjoy classical music, access to a Spotify account if they're of um, uh, low means to be able to do it themselves. I mean, a Spotify account's very low cost, uh, and there's no need for us to spend tens of millions of dollars on broadcasting it uh, to the less than a 1,000 people who probably listen. Glenn also comments on this and says, Abolish Concert FM, defund the NZSO, wash your mouth out, Cameron Stater, you Philistine. Well, I might be a Philistine, but it's my money that's paying for those super uh, subsidised seats for the New Zealand symphony orchestra, I'd also defund the ballet as well while we're at it and have a go at the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra. You know, There's no need in a modern society for the state to be funding all of this to the tune of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So I might be a Philistine, but um, I want my money spent on things that I appreciate, not what you appreciate. And that sounds grumpy and curmudgeonly, but hey, that's me. Araha writes, Cam, I was one of the people you said, him, you must be joking when you joined RCR. I'm 76, and I well remember your whale oil nastiness, but thought they, RCR, aren't stupid. And then I read your story, and I listened to a couple of crunches. And after that, had the mission to convert doubting friends. And as you said in your post-election session with Paul and Marty, your great strength as you listen to your guests and engage with them, and don't go for the aggressive confrontational hits that the current MSM journalists do. Kia kaha. Thank you so much, Araha. I appreciate those thoughts, and uh, I am trying to be different uh, from back in, in the whale oil days, and it looks like it's working. Another cam writes, boss of state services leaving is interesting Institutional knowledge leaving, on strike, in protest, but also, what a blessing, gone burger. A couple of comments about Matt McCartan. Uh, Anonymous says, good analysis with Matt McCartan, well worth listening to the show. And Kevin says, good discussion with Matt. I'm not political, but I'm getting there. Cam, you mentioned that as a politician, you said you have to lie. Can you give me an example when you think it's acceptable? Well, As a Christian, I don't think it is acceptable to lie. And that's why I have a real problem with politicians who claim that they're Christian and are politicians. I don't believe it's possible for any politician to not lie. And if you remember, Akita, the 2017 election, Jacinda Ardern famously said she believes that she's never told a lie in politics and that she never will. Well, we all know how that ended and it wasn't well. And the first lie she told was that she's never told a lie. And uh, we've got some comments about Rachel Stewart. Rachel said, what did they think we were doing during lockdown? They thought we were baking sourdough and learning how to knit and not talking to our neighbours, but we were organising. Rachel Stewart is awesome. Really cool discussion with her. Thank you. I love you both. And wrong, Cam, Helen Clark and her policy of interest off student loans was good. We had 7% interest on our loans from day dot of drawdown. By the time we graduated, our loans had doubled or tripled before we even started earning. So that was one thing. Jacinda didn't do anything near that transformative for people. Mike from Foxton, my favorite correspondent. He says, hi, Cam, just listening to your interview with Rachel. What a lovely woman. And as a Boilermaker who was on the march to Parliament in 1978, I can totally relate to her statement about a Labour voter never voting for New Zealand First. I never thought that I would ever not vote for Labour, and I grew up living just the, over the, up the road from another boilermaker, Fraser Coleman, a man who went to Muraroa Atoll to protest nuclear testing in the Pacific. A man with integrity, passion and honesty, qualities missing in the career politician of today. I'm so glad the old regime is out and may it stay that way for a couple of decades at least and that we can grow the new people in New Zealand First to be confident, passionate and honest leaders. Maria from Tauranga writes, enjoyed the interview with Rachel Stewart. she would be a fascinating person to come for dinner. So glad Winston will be at the negotiation table. Bad luck for you, David. You'll be breaking your first promise not to work with him you're an idiot. I only wish more people understood the wasted vote to be fair. I only learned the reality of this election. More education is needed to understand it. Such a shame our freedom fighters in New Zealand First didn't make it. I hope they don't give up politics and keep fighting in the Kiwi corner. Diana says, I'm listening to the replay of Cam and Rachel's interview. They both resonated with me. You're both saying what I was thinking. I would have never thought that I would be voting Winston, but here we are. He was the only logical choice for a freedom thinker. Unlike Rachel, I've been an ACT voter since Rodney's days and even voted in Epsom. Like Cam, I could not bring myself to vote for any of the 120 MPs who would not speak to the protesters. And Jacinda, jabby, wanting to be first at anything. Maybe she can be first to have the unearned dame taken off her for destroying New Zealand. It was a total travesty giving it to her, a damehood and giving Doomfield a knighthood. Disgusting abuse of the honours system. Anonymous says National did have a good election. We've never had a media landscape like this, being paid for and in the pocket of labour. National did well just to keep their head down. The media gaslit the movie too, still not reading the room. Did Rachel see River of Freedom at the embassy? They held out a long time to play it. Uh, yes, Rachel did see the River of Freedom uh, movie, so and she gave us our thoughts on that. The patrons of National and ACT are the rich pricks. I assume that when the Nats didn't do a deal with Winston but tried to take him out, Paula Bennett, they were following orders. Winston made serious wine box enemies who have egos too and want his head on a plate. It's the only rational explanation I can see here. National couldn't be that stupid. Cheers for the program, Steve. And Julian writes and says, Hi Cam, really enjoyed that interview with Rachel. and In fact, I'm enjoying all of your others. I am right of centre, but enjoy different perspectives. From Sean Plunkett, Leighton Smith to the working group. I particularly miss Rachel's pieces in the Herald, but believe she went the way of Michael Bassett. Keep up the good work. And some comment, one comment, a long one, from Mark about New Zealand First. I need, we need Winston Peters. It's a mad, mad world when supposedly 90% of Kiwis reckon Ardern and Hipkins were economic morons, yet 90% of them believed to be health experts. Most, with the exception of no-jab-no-job victims, willingly inserted a jab into their bodies with ingredients unknown for a virus that was no more dangerous than the common cold. All this on a politician say-so. Ironically, the same people who had a choice would not buy a new vehicle without a five-year warranty, but would happily take a novel experimental drug without any indemnity or legal recourse if things went wrong with their health. Go figure. It's a mad, mad world when the same people would protest profusely against the production of GMO-modified foods, but would happily insert this gene-modifying drug that alters the cells of their bodies with known and unknown adverse events. And it's a mad, mad world when people start to believe that a single source of truth together with proposed legislation to censor misinformation or disinformation as per Orwell's 1984 is needed for freedom of speech. Yes, the world has morphed from mad to the insane, but nothing will compare to this madness if the system allows an adult man to follow my eight-year-old granddaughter into a public toilet. My being will then be removed from all civilized thoughts and emotional restraint. In the aftermath, I hope the judicial system will treat me with compassion. Therefore, before it comes to that, I hope Winston wins the up-and-coming by-election and comes home with a wet sail with the special votes. I need, and we need, New Zealand First to restore our civil sensibilities and pride in what is simply right for our children and our society as a whole. We'll also need to understand that our existentialistic crisis is not the bogus climate change planned epidemics, cabal militants or gender identification, or who or what determines misinformation, but with ourselves and our politicians who can have the guts to bring back spiritual and moral values to rebalance and correct this insane world. And Mark, that is a brilliant letter to finish the mailbag this week, and we'll have more correspondence next week.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
5: Right, that's it for the crunch this week. Wasn't it interesting to get Liam here's perspective on how the National Party fared in the election? National supporters must be feeling a little bit disappointed. Their last minute scare tactics regarding coalition negotiations seem to have failed, and they didn't make it over the 40% mark against the worst government ever. The very thing they've sought to avoid, negotiating with Winston Peters, seems increasingly likely to happen as will a three-party coalition. It all comes down to the special votes, and with 20% of the votes still to be counted, expect some changes. But there are some fundamental things wrong with our society and economy, and Liam is probably right that the new government is going to have to knuckle down and focus on simple but crucial things like getting the cost of living under control, addressing the rampant violent crime in society, and fundamentally fixing the health system before we can tackle more complex issues. We certainly have a few years of hard yakka ahead of us. And that's why we are here at Reality Check Radio to give you all sides of any story or issue to discuss those meaty issues and thrash them out. And it's a job that we all love doing. If you're using the RCR app, and you really should be, you can easily get all our replays on there as well as listen live. And I have to give a big thanks for the team that helps put together this show each week and makes it all work. I'm truly grateful for their support, from Bex, my producer, to Dave and Charlie keeping everything tight in the back end, to Liz for collating the mailbag, thanks to you all. It's been a real pleasure having you all back again this week. I'm loving your feedback, including the Brick Bats, and really enjoy talking to so many people sharing their thoughts on politics, life faith, and everything in between. But politics is like rust. It never sleeps. So here at The Crunch, we'll continue holding the politicians' feet to the fire. And a big shout out to all of you and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we continue to explore this beautiful game of politics. Don't forget email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Now stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including money talks with my pal Fazan Irani, and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater.
0: You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 pm for more with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.